Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Den of Sin with Devin and James. I am James, and with me, as always, is uh, my partner in crime, uh, Devin. How are you doing, Devin? Hey, everybody. Hey, James. I'm all right. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm uh, especially excited to talk about tonight's uh, topic. Um, me too. This, this is, uh, it's been on my short list of most, you know, most anticipated topics, because this is uh, a filmmaker, I would say, is very important to my my journey becoming a uh, a big uh, film fan a film buff however you want to say it so um but yeah any uh any new and exciting things in the movie world you want to discuss before we get into the topic <laughs> we i know you're always do a whole other episode just on what's on my mind lately um, yeah which we should do you know uh not necessarily a rant and rave one but we have been talking about maybe doing um a grab bag where we we each kind of uh, pick uh, a handful of movies, uh, each one of us to uh, show the other one that wouldn't fit necessarily a particular topic that we've been really wanting to discuss on a personal level because we just saw it or haven't seen it in a while or or whatever. And that might be a, a good one to start with a rant and rave. Certainly with the writer's strike, there's a lot going on and we all just survived Barbenheimer weekend. and yeah. Uh, which i have not i have not particularly uh i very uh will say less than popular opinions on christopher nolan's uh work um but i i i do have high hopes for oppenheimer i've heard nothing but good things uh you and i are always in agreement on christopher nolan and and i am actually looking forward to this and i am willing to believe that it might just be partly the hype of it but i like the barbenheimer moment i like that oh yeah me too i think it's great for cinema yeah, they're so excited to see something that's not a sequel, even though, uh, you know, one is a very significant uh, intellectual property, but we have not seen, you know, a movie of it. And it hasn't, you know, th- and this was sort of treated as an origin story, but not really. Uh, so uh, I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. I, I plan to. It just started playing in 70 millimeter in my area. So my guess is I might be able to get tickets to it by October and uh barbie i did see and i'm actually dying to see it again because i thought barbie was fucking brilliant uh and i'm so glad to see someone like greta gerwig kind of taking the reins of of something that's such such a major studio and and david zasloff studio on top of that you know yeah uh and and getting to just like openly dump on mattel uh with the mattel logo right in the front as a seal of approval yeah. uh there had to have been some very nervous executives over that uh, i mean that's the thing I, we won't we won't we won't stray too far from the topic or get too up we won't go too far down this rabbit hole uh but you know right away when the barbie film had been in production at one point you know it, it was very notoriously attributed to amy schumer mm-hmm. and it was an amy schumer project and stuff but uh, as soon as i heard Greta Gerwig was attached to it who both as a filmmaker and as an, as an actress, I have I hold in high regards. But as soon as I heard her name attached to it, I knew exactly I could anticipate, we'll say, where she was going to take it and how what kind of material she would be bringing to that project. And the second I saw the very first trailer, I was like, "Yep, this is exactly what I was hoping for and what I anticipated." And everything. I I mean, again, I haven't seen it, so this is all conjecture at this point. But uh, I'll, I'll say I'll I'll give you this. Uh... <laughs> You know, there is a line about the Godfather that is going to like pierce you to your heart. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you, my wife and stepdaughter laughed hysterically at it, <laughs> nudging me. 
So <laughs> it's really top-notch satire. We're going to talk about some top-notch satire tonight as well. Yeah, so yeah. it's actually, I, I do think that it, it kind of goes into what we're talking about because our topic tonight is Hal Ashby, great editor and director Hal Ashby, who I think is in the running. He might actually be my favorite filmmaker of the 70s. I don't think anybody else has the run of hits that he does. Yeah. I mean, there's I have other directors I would call my favorite directors over Hal Ashby, but for specifically the 70s, which is what we're going to cover, Hal Ashby in the 70s, like even Scorsese didn't have this string of hits in the 70s. You know, like when you look at Scorsese career, who I would probably say is my favorite filmmaker, you know, to get to Raging Bull and King of Comedy, you have to get into the 80s and to get into Goodfellas and Age of Innocence and Casino, you have to get into the in, 90s and, 80s, yeah. you know, on and on and on. Hal Ashby, unfortunately, he wasn't with us for very long. Uh, born in 1929, died in 1988. He was only 59 years old, uh, yep. died of cancer uh, far, far too soon. Uh, but it isn't just that, that like he, you know, 1988 isn't 1980, you know, uh, he, he continued to work during those years and his his output is significantly different in the 80s. So yeah. we'll, we'll be able to get into some of that too. Um, there's some rumors out there. There's, some of them are facts. It's interesting to find out what is not true about Hal Ashby. Uh, it's almost as interesting to find out what's not true about Hal Ashby as it is to find out what is true about Hal Ashby. <laughs> he got his start. He was actually a little bit older than the filmmakers who were really rising to prominence in the 70s, the the Coppola's and certainly the Spielberg's and Scorsese's and De Palma's. He actually came from like the same generation that Kubrick came from. Uh, but due to a, a rather interesting life, I, I won't get too buried in the details of his life story because there's a, actually a fantastic documentary that came out in 2018 uh, called Simply Hal, directed by Amy Scott, uh, that will tell you the, the story in a lot more detail and you'll get much more of a at least much more of an impression of who he is i'm not sure he let a lot of people near him see who he really was but i i will point out before we get too much further away and in, into the films uh a couple of things that were pertinent about him his parents uh divorced when he was six and his father committed suicide when he was 12 and if anyone already knows which i'm sure most people do what hal ashby directed that's going to already start to draw some correlations in your mind. We'll, we'll get into the more of the specifics on that, but uh, he, he was married five times. He was married and had a kid and divorced already by the time he was 19 living in Utah. He picked up and moved, uh, did not participate in his new family and headed West. Like so many other people around that same time, he was a little ahead of the hippies, but he was kind of right there with the beat generation who were really the, the first, uh, well, I guess the hobos would almost be like uh, the precursor to the beat generation. Um, but he went west and decided to be a filmmaker. Uh, had the audacity to just walk into a high, you know a hiring agency and say, "Yes, I'd like to work in the film industry." And they happened to find him a job uh, <laughs> printing copies of scripts for the studios. Uh, so he was just there printing scripts until he met one person and that led to the next person. And before he knew it, he was editing for some of the uh, most prominent film editors of that period, uh, making movies like the greatest story ever told. Uh, he, he ultimately ended up becoming close friends with the filmmaker, Norman Jewison, who's still with us today. Who's a genius in his own right. Right. Yeah. 
things like Thomas Crown Affair and Moonstruck. And my favorite of his is Injustice for All with Al Pacino. But uh, Norman Jewison directed In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. And he had Hal Ashby on as the editor for that film. And Hal Ashby won the Oscar for that film. Uh, So that makes Hal Ashby actually one of the rare people who was like heavily recognized in the industry in a certain position and then was able to like move up the line to become a director. But all that was thanks to to Norman Jewison as well, who produced his first film. Well, I, I feel like I'm taking up all the energy here. Uh, do you have anything to say about Hal Ashby before we start diving into the films? Or uh, No, I mean, it's great getting some backstory. Um, again, the fact that he was an accomplished editor and his relationship with Jewison. And, and I mean, it's a perfect segue into talking about his first movie, which Jewison was supposed to direct. Mm-hmm. But then he ended up um, doing his fashion project, I believe, of Fiddler on the Roof, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Yes, and, Fiddler on the Roof. And then suggested uh mr hal ashby uh take the directing reins and uh that would be his first film in 1970 uh the landlord based off of a book which i would love to read someday there's a lot to talk about the landlord um right off the bat um it really is i think of all of his films this one has probably the most amount of um sort of cultural baggage associated with it in now because of what it's about um and how it's handled and the fact that it is uh, so it's, it's essentially based off of the, a book, which is basically about a white landlord who buys a tenement building that he's going to convert into his own sort of luxury apartment, but then ends up becoming kind of enamored with the poor black people that live in this building and kind of embroiled in their lives and turns into some a sort of, uh, there's multiple love stories going on. But um, let's talk about it first off. So I actually saw this film because I at one point it was the only Hal Ashby film I hadn't seen and I wanted to see it and I know it wasn't well this the few things I'd heard about was that it wasn't really well loved at least upon the time of its release I really like it I I say that with a little bit of a caveat because there is um uh, I can see how in 2023 now um why there may be some um some questionable um, trying to do this with, with kid gloves, but I I don't necessarily find the film to be, I think Hal Ashby being a white man who's taking on a a book written by um, a black woman um, who's trying to say something about, um, especially at that time in the seventies or when the book was written in the late sixties about, you know, the experience of being a black person in the United States and the truth of, about race to like relate race relations race relations in the country but also seeing it trying to come in a place of emotional honesty about you know uh how people really treat each other and where the it, it's just a very it, it's an interesting concept again i haven't read the book I, I i i honestly would love to um but the film is definitely a comedy um, and I'm sure there's comedic elements in the book. And and again, there is, is definitely satirical. Bo Bridges, is, you know, plays the main character. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, he's got such a funny white guy name. Edgar, Elgar. Elgar, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, and it's funny because I always thought Bo Bridges was underrated. You know, he's definitely not the star his brother has become. But I always found him very likable. And oh, this yeah. is a role that 
he he is so the character is a rich buffoon. His family is are rich buffoons. There's definitely racial, uh, both subtle and not at all subtle uh, races sentiment coming from his family. And you know he's a product of the environment, but he's basically been he he comes into it with his only agenda is is selfishness and you know his self interest of having his own apartment, his own place to live. Uh, and he kind of stumbles into these people's lives. Um, and it's a hard. It would be. It could be a very unlikable character, but Bo Bridges manages to play it so sincerely that the comedy kind of the comedy does work, and you you can see that yes, he is a moral. He is kind of a, a, a dumbass, but yeah. he is trying, or he's he's. It's it's a very interesting role. Um, the whole first off, I have to say, my favorite thing in the whole movie, seeing it, and again with having no preconception, is. The actress who, uh, who plays his mother, who's in another movie we'll talk about too, uh, Lee Grant. Yes, yes Lee she Grant. is. She steals every scene she's in as his sort of super waspy Long Island rich white Long Island uh, mother. Um, she's phenomenal, and again to the point where it's a character who could be very unlikable, and obviously has some very unlikable traits, but she still manages to be very in- entertaining, and you. Sh- is a, honestly a really interesting character um yeah, but the whole cast complexity to her considering how broadly she's created i i think the writer yes. wrote her broad and and lee grant brought layers to that yeah absolutely well there is a great my favorite thing is the, the same movie. with bo bridges too actually oh yeah and i could definitely see that well i i think the script which um was co-written or is it it was de- co-developed anyways by the writer who did a, a movie I love called um, uh, Gone horror movie. Yes. yes, thank you. I blanked on the, the name for a second. Bill Gunn is the name of the writer. Yeah, thank you, Bill Gunn. Thank you. I think there's so much we could talk. We're going to end up talking about it. Just as Ashby as a filmmaker, and the one thing that I think really places him above so many of his contemporaries of the '70s is that he really is a humanist, and he does actually like people, and he treats even really flawed people with some kind of dignity you can tell he has a he has a generous heart as a person in in how he views humanity and that that really kind of comes across in in the the best of his work which is why i think he can kind of write a character who is questionably um unlikable or questionably maybe not a good person but still have them have some humanity and some likability Um, and i think he probably you know worked with the cast there's a lot lot to be said about this movie i don't know how much we want to go into depth as far as the, the story or uh but the whole cast is great um uh i'm blanking on the uh oh my god why am i blanking on everybody's names I, I i always tell myself i should have like like notes for this but uh i never do let me see, real quick um which care are you talking about diana sands pearl bailey lou gossett jr well let's say so pearl bailey, I say, there's a scene when um, was her Nick character's name Marge, Margot, something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, where um, Lee Grant, the mother character, it's actually a pretty extended scene. I, I remember it thinking it was short, and then when you know revisiting it, I was like, oh, this is a much longer scene than I remember. But where basically his mother goes to his apartment, um, ha- meets uh, Pearl Bailey's character, and they kind of get drunk and they eat ham hocks, and it it's such a weird scene, but there's so much acting going on and. It's, there's so much humanity in the scene that I just, it's my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's the most memorable scene. 
And it, you know, at this point, the main character, he's been in the movie, and the Bo Bridges character, it's been about him and his experience, but there's this like 20 minute scene that's literally just his mother and this Marge character, who's sort of the first person that Bo Bridges' character comes when he goes to the apartment that he's bought. You know, she basically greets him with a shotgun and um, she thinks that he, she thinks he's a rapist there. And then once she finds out that he's the new landlord, she kind of, kind of kisses that his ass a little bit. But anyways, I don't want to, I, I mean, I'll let you kind of go into it, but it's a movie, even the way that it was filmed and how, you know, when it's, it's in sunny Long Island, you know, it's filmed very bright and airy and there's shots are really open. But when it's filmed in Brooklyn, which is funny because the movie talks about the, it's the beginning of the gentrification of Brooklyn. And now by today, it's fully gentrified Brooklyn. Yeah. As you know, well, um, yeah, Park Slope does not look like it does in this movie anymore. No. And, and I haven't been to Park Slope in 20 years. Uh, and it didn't look a thing like it then. Yeah. But anyways, it's, I, I, I find it. I actually really enjoy it. I think it's a really brilliant first film. I like it probably more than, you know, some, you know, film critics as far as uh, I think, again, I went in with no, I literally, when I watched it, I knew the title and I, I think I knew a basic, may, maybe a small idea of what it was about, but I kind of went inside and scene with no expectations just knowing, you know, it's how she's first movie. And there, there was the scene at the, there's a party and there's a brilliant scene there that's very it, it's weird because it's there's more experimental things going on in this film than you know by the time you get to um coming home which is a very strict melodrama there's a lot more kind of experimental 70 early 70s filmmaking going on in here that i really like but yeah. you know he doesn't really carry over but it, yeah there's some it carries like it carries for a little bit i i would say that it lasts for the first couple of films and then by the third one, he's starting to become a little bit more narrative, but there's still really not a strong plot. It's just yeah. characters. And then that's, that's kind of his MO. But by, yeah, by the time he gets to coming home, he is telling like a, a narrative story. The way that I kept thinking about it, I, I saw The Landlord for the first time a few years back when Netflix streaming was brand new. And I had been hearing about this movie forever, but it was largely. I love that you say a few years back. And Netflix has been out for like 15 years. Well, when they first started streaming. So I guess, um, yeah, the streaming site. Yeah. yeah uh, they, they did not have a lot of content. They weren't creating any content of their own. And the studios were apprehensive about licensing things. And so what happened was a bunch of stuff that was never available on DVD uh, and Blu-ray was still brand new back then. Uh, but things that hadn't been available for like 20, 30, 40 years like Peter Bogdanovich's At Long Last Love is an example of that. These films were getting put on Netflix because the studios were like, yeah, sure, you can take this weird Burt Reynolds musical. Um, <laughs> and that's how I saw a lot of these things for the first time. Is uh, and that's what sold me on Netflix. You know, I, I watched Arrested Development on there like the rest of everybody. But what really kept me going was like, holy shit, the landlord's on here. And I've been hearing about the landlord for years because I remember my my old boss at the movie theater in New York had it on tape from like he recorded it off of Turner Classic Movies 500 years ago or something or AMC. Um, and I didn't even know it existed back then. Uh, we were talking about Hal Ashby and he's like, oh, have you seen The Landlord? You got to see The Landlord. Um, and I never got the invite over to see it. But yeah, it had been like high up on my list of things to look for. And suddenly here it is. And I can watch it without even running to the video store. 
And so that's how I saw it. And the thought that occurred to me, and it occurred to me again as I was rewatching it for this, this is what it looks like when a movie editor directs a movie. Uh, this film in particular, like it's the same way, like Phil Collins, when you listen to in the air tonight and everyone knows which part I'm talking about, yeah, <laughs> this is what it sounds like when, when the, drummer. when the drummer of the band is allowed to lead the band. And uh, you'll notice <laughs> it happens all over uh, Phil Collins music. There's these great drum spots. Like, yes, there's the very famous one in in the air tonight, but there's also a, another fantastic one in uh Take a look at me now against yeah. all odds. Yeah, that's kind of the same thing going on here. It's a particular set of skills that obviously doesn't not fit because it's it's part of the same process, but it's such a different part of the process than where you usually see people coming from. And I think that mixed with, you know, a, a healthy dose of, of marijuana and mushrooms and good old fashioned counterculture, you know, disposition. <laughs> he ended up with this thing that's that's like kind of wildly cut and has non sequiturs, you know, has sequence that where it cuts away from the action to show you the internal thinkings of what that character yeah. is, is has on their mind, you know, like uh, when, when Lee Grant finds out that Bo Bridges is in love with one of the kids, yeah. it like immediately flashes to this horrendous shot that looks like it's, you know, her on a plantation with all the enslaved children. Um, which is clearly how this waspy mother is envisioning her future at the moment that her son tells her that he's in love with a, a black woman. And, and it's it's brutal, but it's true. It's true of people now, even. Uh, I'm sure lots of mothers would have that same thought, unfortunately. And it, But the I, I bring it up because, you know, the, the, the editing style of it, to edit away from your story, to show the inner thoughts. I mean, it's something that we see 10 times an episode in Family Guy and we just disregard it now because Family Guy popularized that on television. But here it is working in, you know, a 1970 uh, studio feature. And and there had been a lot of very counterculture movies, obviously, of the late 60s that especially came out of the independent studios and exploitation studios. But this was a full-on studio movie. So for him to bring that sort of, of style to it, um, I think did a really good job of, of blending these two worlds and allowing us to to really understand kind of where each character was coming from. And each character was drawn a little broad. Both the, the tenants and the rich white family are all very intentionally dialed up to 11 and all kind of like represent certain archetypes uh, within that community. So it, it never stoops to the level of stereotyping, but you can definitely feel archetypes are being used. And uh, and I think that it actually does a really honest job of, for the most part, not 100 percent, but for the most part, not stooping to like white saviorism, which was no, and very much, you know, the mode in 1970 it was still very much yeah. the mode until very, very recently. Um, I mean, yeah, even. Yeah. But he's not there to, you know, yes, we all know that he's he's bought this apartment to turn it into his own sort of like park slope mansion to show his friends and and to, one of his friends even says at one point well once the beautiful beautiful people move into this neighborhood yeah, yeah it, it, it's it, it can he, go the he, direction though like as he meets these people it, it could go in the direction of like oh no i've got to help these people and i mean it does to the slimmest extent but really what it is is they're helping him understand why he's wrong 
So I would actually say that he does like he's the one that benefits the most from going through this experience because they're the ones who open his eyes. And and yes, I, I without giving away the ending, uh he the ending's great though. Yeah, he, he does end up, you know, he's no longer in control of the building and someone that was already living in the building is now in control of the building, but it's not a gift. It's uh like things happen within the story yeah. to where like this person deserved this break. And um I and, and for that reason, I like I said, I think it mostly stays away from white saviorism and is really about them teaching him the lessons and about them improving his life in understanding the world more. Uh, well, in but, fact, yeah, but, I but mean, also, while, like I said, like exposing all of these issues to uh, to a society that maybe wasn't as cognizant of them in 1970, uh, the 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 militancy of of the Lou Gossett, Gossett Jr. character, who's like almost driven insane. Yeah, in fact, I you know, it's funny because at no point, I mean, there's so much kind of we could assume about the characters and their motivations and how really gets him to sort of pivot in in his attempt to like you know kick all these tenants out is lust you know there's you know a a beautiful lady uh who he's sort of you know uh becomes you know friendly with that there you know it's his motivation at first is probably a combination of lust and you know uh excitement and and you know he's they're so different from his family well he and he really kind of fucks people like through the movie, he kind of just complicates people's lives more than yeah. Oh, he know. makes a lot of those people's lives worse, which is again yeah, like, exactly. Uh, you know, escaping the white savior trope. But you know, he he's so naive, and I think that's like part of the key to this is that you know, like like you said, he he goes in there with the full intention of of evicting everybody eventually, mm-hmm. and he's very upfront about that. But he's not upfront in like a dickish sort of. You know, oh no! So, so that you know, uh, you know, you you'll be out of here in another two months. Like it's very like, oh no, I'm the landlord. I own this place now. I, I'm going to turn it into this. So he's yeah. not even necessarily telling them I'm going to evict you. He's just telling you what his plan is, and it doesn't include them. Uh, and that doesn't come from him being malicious. And I don't think a lot of gentrification does come from maliciousness per se. No, I think in some cases it does, but. But by and large, it, it's it's appropriation and and yep. it's it's something where someone just doesn't understand that what they're doing is having dire consequences on the people that yeah I mean it, it 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 is literally the it at no point in the movie do they use the term privilege it's literally all about white privilege and and the privilege of affluency because as you said like. There's a whole speech about his his mother gives to basically say that she's not you know they're 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 you know liberals and uh, which uh, you know yeah. everything that comes out of her mouth is almost <laughs> contrary to that but but you know and like they they saw um, look who's coming to dinner together and but you know there's good good ones and bad ones just like white people there's this whole like speech where she's trying to say like you know I'm not a you know I don't think they're all bad but you have to be careful and it's this brilliant scene because it's exactly how white people think yeah, especially yeah. you know um in, in the in their truths when they're around when there's no cameras on which is like you know they don't see themselves as the bad guys they're just trying you know um i will say too there's so many great there's so much great dialogue in this movie that like 
I'm I'm surprised is it more that the film isn't more well known, but there's a line at the end about I mean again we I don't know if you, we want to go we, we always kind of do that on this podcast we don't want to do spoilers and we end up giving away spoilers but um, I, think, I think people understand that they're this is a spoiler show yeah but you know where there's just, I again I, I think if you're I I would definitely say of any episode if you're not if if you're listening to this and you you haven't seen any of the films we're talking about tonight absolutely highest recommendation go watch them uh, and you know there there are films on we'll talk about tonight that I'm not as thrilled about but I definitely think every one of his films is worth seeing but anyways there's there's just really great dialogue in it and it's very very clever but also very poignant and very emotionally true and in, in in however you want to take that but there's dialogue that points that are made in this movie that hold up 53 years later that like uh, still relevant for good or bad but it's just a really interesting movie again Cole cast is great like um god why am i blanking on everybody's name um um anyways all the the actresses are great in it um the cinematography is really really good it's really interesting um it's filmed yeah, by this Gordon Willis yeah yeah um i there's a whole thing i read about which i remember seeing it for the first time and it is i mean it, you can't not notice it the the difference between when it's filmed when like the white characters are on like the one everything takes place around the white family in in like long island and and everything to do with the affluent characters and then when you go to park slope the, the lighting is very different at some points in the film um it almost is hard to see the characters but what i didn't know when i first watched it that uh the that gordon willis was famous for being the first cinematographer to light it for heat of the night in the heat of the night he for lighting an actor of color properly yeah so that 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 there was a conscious decision he and i for the the for gordon willis to, to light him properly but then almost in reverse of that for this film to film the characters and again i mean i i get the visual metaphor there's an oppressiveness there's a there's you know it's things are a little bit more um serious and the shit people are going through a little bit more serious so there's more darkness there's more shadows and i get that metaphor but it is interesting and i you know the little bit of research i did for tonight you know i, I i've heard that some people now have a problem with that and that it seems almost backhanded or almost patronizing i don't see it that way but because I can sort of see where they were coming at in 1970, but it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely an argument that could be made, but I don't know how you feel about that or if that's something you thought about. Um, I don't know about whether it, it was. Just even if you thought about that, that how it's filmed in that way, where it's so brightly lit and clean and, you know, when he's with his family versus. Well, I, oh, yeah. I absolutely think that was intentional. And I think it was oh, it, to set up a juxtapose, but I don't think it was trying to say one was better than the other. I think it was just trying to show the difference between two very different worlds, which is, yeah. I mean, this is a movie about this guy stepping from one world into the next world. Yeah. Um, and he's going to face all of this. There's actually two kind of love stories in this, both with yep. Elgar. And we're probably talking a little bit too long about the first feature here, considering what we have else to talk about, but yeah, there, there's so much to unpack about this movie, but yeah, I, I don't, think that there's anything wrong with lighting it the way that he lit it i think that that was an artistic choice and i think i think it works i think it works for this i one. think it absolutely works. and again i think it's very clear 
like it going in blind, not knowing anything about it, not knowing any of the history, blah, blah, blah. That what it's, you know, and again, it's like, these are people living in, in low income areas that, I mean, it's again, it's just even a visual metaphor for they don't have all of the same luxuries that, you know, uh, that the rich, you know, uh, the left coat, well, I guess it would be not left coast, but, um, you know, the, the liberal elites of the, uh, you know, the, the white families have in Long Island. And uh, yeah, I, again, I, I found it, you know, pretty, I thought it was a really interesting choice, but again, in, in modern context, the conversation around should white filmmakers even ha- like try to tell these stories and stuff. But again, that's we're, we won't, that's not what this podcast is about tonight. But um, anyways, I just thought it was really, for me being his first movie. And again, a movie that literally I never, I heard more people talk about bound for glory than I'd heard talk about the landlord, you know, years ago. So I kind of honestly assumed it was shitty that it was, that I wasn't going to like it. The studio just didn't know what to do with it. No. It never got proper marketing. Uh, they financed this, you know, at the time when they had Norman Jewison on board, who was like an Oscar winning director at that point for In the Heat of the Night. And so they gave him $2 million, I believe, to work with, which is what Hal Ashby inherited to make, which is actually a really high budget for this type of thing. But they were making it for a late 60s audience, which no longer existed in 1970. Like they, that period was somewhat similar to now in, in the sense that society and, and social issues were ch- turning on a dime. Yeah. And so the studio even put out a, a notice at one point saying, we want to continue to make movies like The Landlord, but we're going to make them for about a quarter of the budget. We made that movie for one particular audience, and that particular audience no longer existed in 1970. I, well, I they think, also, I think... I, and I think the Barbenheimer sort of vibe is kind of showing a very similar maybe not the same definitely not the same social changes artistically speaking uh but the same like uh, there's the current is changing in hollywood in the studio system as we speak well i mean i mean and that was happening then as well two points to that too first off like this is post summer 69 this is like at this point you know i i think hal ashby you know you know has a very hippie approach to his outlook and to um, the kind of material he took on. Um, but this was post summer 69. This was, you know, the, the summer 69 had turned dark by this point. Cole, like you said, in fact, he deals a lot with that. He deals a lot with politics. Um, and sometimes, you know, Especially so sometimes classism, just, classism, oh, and and classism. The haves and the have nots and the powerful and the powerless. And I, I do remember though, seeing like the, the poster very famously, the poster is like two doorbells and it's like a finger and with it again not knowing anything i was like is that supposed to be two boobs and i guess it was branded as a sex comedy which it's not at all a sex not comedy slightest it, it no. is i didn't even notice it the first like i just thought oh it's a movie called the landlord and it's a picture of a finger coming in to ring a doorbell and, and i didn't even notice there was a second doorbell on i thought that was just kind of like an effect or something and then when i realized it a, a couple of weeks ago looking at it again i i got the blu-ray which people should pick up it's going out of print but yeah i'm like oh my god they really were trying to promote this as a sex comedy and it couldn't be that couldn't be further from the truth so now i kind of no. hate the poster I don't, oh yeah i mean the, i don't think the poster is very of its time of it but yeah it's very misleading um but it's a the thing is like it it is it actually has a very poignant love story and and again it, it by the end of it it's actually i don't know i i feel like hal ashby for the like his better work he always had really great endings by great endings i don't always mean happy endings or definitive endings but he always 
he knew how to end a movie that had an uh, end a film in a way that would have an impact on the audience. And I, I really like the ending of this yeah. movie. With that said, though, um, we have a lot of other films to talk about. Uh, well, we did keep you... up with the class struggle in the next one. Yes, absolutely. Um, really, the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after I, that. I was going to say, <laughs> literally, he, I will say, like, well, again, we, we there's so much to talk about, uh, and, and we'll talk about them all. Um, do you want to talk about his next film? Well, uh, Landlord was 1970, and in 1971, uh, Hal Ashby released what became one of his most well-known films, one of the films that's most closely associated with him, uh, even though it wasn't a huge success at the time. Uh, it was almost an instant cult film, and yeah. that is Harold and Maude, uh, being the uh, the story of a very wealthy boy. Uh, well, I shouldn't say boy. His age is in question. There, There's yeah. clues that point to his age, but uh, <laughs> you can get in trouble for saying boy. He the way he was written and the way he's written in the novel or the source material anyways, I think it was written as a, as a thesis paper for uh, college by the writer, Colin Higgins. But anyway, it's mentioned that he's about 19 or 20. So he's very young, but he is legal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a very wealthy young man named Harold who has an obsession with, I don't even know. It's not even an obsession with suicide per se, but he keeps on trying to, create these suicide scenarios where he fakes his death in front of his mother and she doesn't he doesn't seem to get a rise out of her but no i think times yeah um, so i think the whole point and again i would say it's an obsession with death more than an obsession with or mortality he's definitely a morbid yes, character there you go so it's not with suicide it's a it's but it is with mortality and, and yeah. the thoughts of his own demise because he, he states later on in the film uh, that when he was younger and he was in school, he did something where he blew up the chemistry lab fooling around in there. And he knew at that point he was going to be expelled. So he just walked home to his affluent house and his mother was having a garden party. And so he didn't want to disturb his mother. So he went upstairs and laid down. And then he heard as the cops showed up and he was thinking, OK, now the other shoe drops. I'm going to be in huge trouble for blowing up the chem lab. And the cop comes in and reports to the mother that he died, that Harold had died in the explosion because Harold picked up and walked away without telling anybody. And so seeing his mother in front of all of her friends react dramatically and, you know, cover her face and, and practically pass out, he said, at that moment, I thought maybe it would be more fun to be dead. So, uh, or preferred to be dead. Um, But yeah, so we start off the film with him pretending to hang himself. He, you know, at, at various points, he tries to shoot himself. One of my favorite parts is when he uh, is trying to scare her away at date. A that date. His mother set him up with by at least making you think that he's setting himself on fire in the back. Immolation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the other thing he does for fun is he visits funerals. And uh, at one of these funerals, or at least a couple of these funerals, he starts to notice there's a a familiar face at these funerals that he's crashing. And it's, you know, you're not really going to see familiar faces at a stranger's funeral multiple times. So he he thinks maybe there's a kindred spirit here. And he he finally meets her. And it's it's an older woman, uh, much older woman, 50 years older than Harold. And this is Maude. And Maude is the epitome of the on-screen epitome of a free spirit. I mean, I would, I associate yeah. 
mod from Harold and Maud with being a free spirit more than Holly Go Lightly or yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's or any other of the so-called free spirits uh, of, of this era of filmmaking. Uh, and she takes Harold on a whirlwind life experience and hanging out with her and stealing cars and <laughs> breaking into song just because you feel like it and uh, teaching them all these kind of crazy tricks. And of course it becomes a love story. And again, I, this is another one. I, I don't know if we want to go into spoiler territory or not, but I, uh, you no, know, we can definitely talk about spoilers in this because I think it's so, I mean, first off, I think that landlord, I think is an undiscovered film. I think at this point, like, you know, there are a few, there's definitely well one discovered. movie tonight we have to talk about the ending um, because the ending literally is the most definitive aspect of the movie. Kind of, we'll, we'll get to there. Yeah. Um, but before we go more into depth about this, the script. So first off, my experience with Hal Ashby starts in Harold and Maude. I think for a lot of people, especially of our age, people who sort of find themselves either a little bit left to center, or people who just maybe don't feel like they fit in everywhere. Uh, I think this movie is definitely a touchstone for oddballs and people who again maybe are a little have a little bit of a misfit streak in them um who would find it uh romantic and fun to to live in an abandoned uh train box car which i still to this day love it's uh fucking love awesome. i love mod's house <laughs> yeah um and you know um gothy people and, and everything can sort of find something this is the the baby or the baby that came from this i should say uh would be tim burton and wes anderson Oh, well, literally, I was going to say, first off, I was going to say, of all of ha- Ashby's work, and I'm not arguing this, is, and I'm not saying that it's his best at all, if you can believe in such a thing, it's best. And yeah, it's, I, I it's, think it's impossible to pick a best of this era. But, but, well, well, yeah, and we'll get, we'll talk more about that in, in a bit, but I definitely think it's his most influential, and it is the most, uh, I, I don't know if I would say idiosyncratic, but it's definitely the most individual of all, all this. What I love about Hal Ashby, and something that has always stuck with me, but especially thinking about doing this and think about his, his seventies films as a, you know, as a full out, like an output is that even though there's so much about each film that make it a Hal Ashby film, they're all so different in both the way they were written. And I mean, he, again, he works a lot, almost exclusively. If I'm thinking of from books and pre-source material and working with and, and, and writers, but somehow they all have a Hal Ashby tone, but they're all so different. And, this, I think, is his most peculiar in, in the best possible way. It just the, the very concept alone, but even how he approaches it. But it's it's so insanely funny. The thing is, I think a lot of people don't realize that how much of a comedy it really is and how much it's intended to be a comedy. Um, hysterically funny. <laughs> it's hysterically funny. Um, everything to do with the like the whole scene when he goes to see, I don't know if it's his uncle or is his mom's friend. I don't remember. It's, so, it's his uncle, the military guy. The military, yeah. The one-armed yeah. Uh, general or whatever. <laughs> the, the, God, the scene is so... Anyways, the it's only brilliant. guy you've ever seen that guy in was Cool Hand Luke. And that, Luke. But then in my head, he's Harold's uncle. But yeah, for, anyways, but the it's such a it's such a special... First off, the, the soundtrack, you know, all of the Cat Stevens, um, uh, I'm blanking on Yusuf, what is his Yusuf Islam? He he now does yes, yeah. answer to Cat Stevens again, though he was yeah I, I, he was I fervently against answering to Cat Stevens for a very long time, but I, I believe that he's, he's come down. back around to like answering to both, basically. But yeah, great. Or at least sound- he considers Cat Sta- Stevens to be his stage name. But yeah, great soundtrack, and uh, so every I mean, um, 
uh, Ruth. Um, oh my God, why am I? Devin, we have a film podcast, and for some reason, I can never remember names. Ruth, you're thinking Ruth, Ruth Gordon, Ruth, the amazing in uh, Ruth on. Gordon, who's yes. in two of my favorite movies of all time. Um, she's phenomenal, and she is honestly the film could without her performance, the film couldn't be made. And I can't think of another actress who could pull that part off. But Bud Court, who didn't have the biggest career, did a few very interesting roles like uh, Bruce McLeod and. Um, yeah, he was a small role in Altman's biggest movie and a major role in Altman's biggest flop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I love Bruce McCloud. Its flopness is not a statement on its quality. Oh, uh, it's quality. Thank you. Bud Court and Shelley Duvall directed by well, Robert Altman. Fucking give me a break. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. We could not agree more on that. <laughs> but he's such a... he. There's so... Like, he... Again, I can't imagine anybody else playing the role of uh, Harold and their moments and and she is like it's those perfect. actors are those characters Character. always, like it's just how it is and their chemistry <laughs> is so beautifully good that's why you know it's a film that i honestly think don't you couldn't make that film again um i don't i think no, culture, and I'm not, not even just the sexual element of it no you know? the whole thing the yeah. all of it together but there's such a beautiful honesty and tenderness and like i said he's it's so obvious that Hal Ashby was a humanist and like even though he was he you know had questions authority and he's definitely a, a, you could tell he had a streak of rebelliousness in him even towards the end I think he was all rebelliousness and he had a streak of conformity like a little yeah. tiny streak of conformity conformity <laughs> but yeah you can tell that like he really loved the characters in his films and like it's the romantic element is so weirdly organic and believable and the film itself is so like lyrical and so you know it's almost like a dream and it's it just works so perfectly and it's one of those movies that like at one point was like you know it was a cult classic and then around the time of like when i think wes anderson was really kind of hitting his stride as you know probably world handbombs you know era where I think it become, there was just a generation of people, you know, at, at their time in their like 20s, late 20s, who sort of really, this, this movie was sort of like rediscovered and really embraced. And then I think it, now it's become a thing of like, it's, I think it's popular to sort of criticize the movie a little bit. I think people, anything that sort of becomes a touchstone or sort of is held up as, uh, uh, as culturally important. The next generation is, is just inherently going to try to tear it down or question it. Um, but I still think this movie holds up. I think it's it's such a beautiful picture. I think it's such a unique look at the world. And is it? It's and that's what's so great about Hal Ashby. Obviously, I have a, such a the movie is literally important for me. It's a movie that I've always held in the highest esteem. But I, there are other films that we'll talk about that I love just as much, if possibly not even more. So, um, anyways, uh, no, I completely agree with everything you're saying. This is. I haven't heard anybody criticizing it myself, but that's more of a statement on <laughs> how, I guess, isolated I am uh, in my 40s. Um, like, you are my film conversations. <laughs> uh, but I can totally see it. I, I can see that, that this would be something that would maybe be considered too hipsterish or, or too, yeah. clever, too clever by a mile in a lot of yeah. ways. Uh, but it's one of those ones, you know, I, I said it, last episode about uh what we were like it's it's kind of like uh halloween where it's 
it's been duplicated so many times that the original seems like it itself is derivative and it's not it, it's completely its own beast the way it's shot it's the cat steven soundtrack like you said um did you the know banjo that? playing the banjo playing yes because <laughs> uh, you gotta love the banjo yeah uh, but yeah, I, I do. I think this is an important film to so many people. And I think that the obvious one is Wes Anderson and then, uh, you know, the the darkness going into Tim Burton. Uh, but I think that the range of filmmakers that were inspired by this is, is so broad. Yes. Uh, you know, because then you've got like Alexander Payne or uh, David yep. Russell or yep. this film seemed to like touch off a lot of creative careers. Uh, P.T. Anderson. I don't see any Tarantino in this one, but I'm sure it's there. Uh, there's probably more Tarantino <laughs> in the next one. Uh, yes. There's a lot of Tarantino in the next one. And what it comes down to is just, it's a simple story about two people. There's really not much of a plot. Harold is having a midlife crisis at 20 and he falls in love with a woman that never grew up and is about to turn 80. And they do it without it seeming gimmicky. The studio freaked out when they found out that Harold and Maude were actually going to have a sex scene. And Ashby was forced to skip the actual sex scene and, and did the more, you know, tasteful, you know, post-coital, you know, in bed with a cigarette sort of moment yep. instead. Uh, but the studio was still freaking out. They kept on trying to get him to, to remove it. Uh, I believe he actually sent... I think he he sent out the trailers. Ashby sent out the trailers with that moment in it so that the studio wouldn't be able to chicken out at the last moment because people would expect to see it or at least they would know that they did see it if it wasn't in the movie. Like people would still say, no, I saw the shot where they were in bed together. Uh, but it also like <laughs> uh, this was a, a Robert Evans production. Robert Evans, we tend to think of, you know, as, as like a you know big blowhard, strong personality. Even he was scared shitless by this. And <laughs> uh, they, if you look at the ad campaign for it, uh, when it was originally released, there's no pictures on the poster. It's just Harold and Maude, like the title, because they were afraid to like market it as any kind of a love story, uh, which they ended up shooting themselves in the foot. They ended up with a movie that was absolutely critically acclaimed, but nobody saw it. Anybody saw who it. saw it loved it. But the five people who saw it back then... Um, but did you know it has been shown continuously in one movie theater in a, in Germany since June sixth of nineteen seventy five. Now that's not when the movie was brand new. This is a couple of years after the movie had come yeah. out. But uh, they only took an exception uh, for the uh, coronavirus, where it was down for I believe ten weeks. Um, but it's been playing every week uh, since nineteen seventy five at this place in Germany, and like that's that's a huge. I mean, it's it's an American film playing in Germany for that long. It, it shows that its impact is global. It shows that its yes. impact is generational. It's an incredible film, and everyone involved should be proud of it. I know Bud Court really never quite escaped it. He turned down roles after this in order to not be stereotyped and and remain stereotyped. Uh, like I know he turned down billy bibbit and one flew over the cuckoo's nest because uh i believe it was robert altman who gave him the advice because altman was his mentor uh who said like look if you play this kid in cuckoo's nest you're never going to be able to get out of being that kid yeah um, the, the weird kid and i i, I honestly i mean i can think of things that i've seen with bud court in the last you know 15 20 years but not much i, I could be wrong he could be all over the place and he's because i i became kind of like I mean, literally, I saw him pop up in a maid 
the John Favreau Vince Vaughn film. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a bit role in that, and I was really like, "Holy shit, is that Bud Court?" For me, uh, it was Life Aquatic. Same moment, like, "Oh wow, yes, <laughs> yes. same, exactly." It, there was like a small, and which I think is so. I think his popping up in those movies coincided with the sort of cultural reawakening of Harold and Maude and it's sort of being embraced by, I really don't know if we should, I mean, I am t- literally the tail end of Gen X. So I don't want to say it's Gen X, but the mid to late nineties, I think was really the reawakening of this film. And when the, you know, Wes Anderson's, you know, were making their films uh, and, and getting a lot of cultural, you know, significance, but yeah, anyways, but yeah, he's sadly, I always thought he was a brilliant you know, I think he had so much potential, but he didn't. I think again the typecasting, and and again he was, you know, he was closeted at the time. I think he was a little typecast, uh, and I think you know he was, you know, it, uh, I mean it's it's. I don't know what other roles I could possibly have seen him in that I think would have played to the strengths that I know he has, based off of the role, seat roles I've seen him play, like in Bruce McLeod and and in this, but he was but when when he was when he was in something he was always great so he's excellent in this uh, i i can't imagine anybody else playing harold and i i couldn't find any lists of people who were up for the harold role uh, i also can't imagine anybody else playing maude other than ruth gordon who uh, as we mentioned is rosemary's baby and every which way but loose which is the only time you'll ever hear those movies mentioned <laughs> in the same breath but she wasn't the first choice for maude now it's a it's a long list of people who by and large, even the names I don't recognize. So I'm not going to like waste too much time with going over them here because it, it's not particularly star studded and how Ashby wasn't interested in that. But there was one interesting name that really stood out to me that Harold or that uh, how Ashby was very interested in for, for playing Maude. And that was uh, the author Agatha Christie. You really want Agatha Christie to play, which makes perfect sense when you think of you know like uh who would harold fall in love with it would be agatha christie you know the, <laughs> the great murder mystery writer uh so i i've never heard agatha christie's name come up in casting for anything in my life so yeah i figured that was worth mentioning but uh yeah without this cast without this director um like all the elements were just right without cat stevens um oh Actually, I just remember there was one person who was up for the role of Harold before Bud Court signed on. This was very, very early. Uh, but mentioning Cat Stevens made me think of it because this person was supposed to do the music as well before Cat Stevens signed on. And in fact, he was the person who suggested Cat Stevens when he turned the role down. And that was Elton John. Elton John was almost Harold. Whoa, I have never heard that. I mean, obviously a lot younger. Yeah. Yeah. Like El- I mean, I could is... kind of, I mean, a young Elton John was just weird. And, I, I could see it. Yeah. Interesting. And, and his, uh, Harold's mother, who, uh, again, this uh, another phenomenal, you know, another one of the great Hal Ashby, waspy mothers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that actress was from England. So it wouldn't have seemed strange and out of place that, uh, that Harold would be in America with an English accent. So, cause I, I really, as interested in it as I would be to see, elton john play harold i wouldn't be interested in seeing elton john try to do an american accent i don't think it's in him I yeah i don't know I, I, the mom um, has a great, one of the, my favorite lines in cinema history is uh is, the the mother is trying to well, well you know uh poor harold is trying to is about to 
you know, do another of his suicide pranks. She is signing him up for like a dating service and she's sort of reading the questions out loud. And the whole scene is great. But she gets one of the questions is, do you find wife swapping distasteful? And she goes, I find the question distasteful. And it's just the way it's, it's the way she reads it is so. Um, yeah, she's she's phenomenal. She's one of the highlights of the movie. And, you know, she's she's kind of a villain because, you know, she doesn't see Harold for who he, you know, she's. But as she's, much as there can be a villain to this story, because it's yeah. not that kind of story. No, exactly. Exactly. That's a yeah, that's a I'm putting a label on it that doesn't it doesn't deserve. But she's she's not supposed to be an overly sympathetic character. But she again, it's the role is played with such perfection that she's it's hard to to not find her character uh, entertaining. So Okay. And uh, before we start to get lost in the woods again, I think we, we should probably get back on track here. This is such a God, I, I can't believe we haven't done Al Ashby yet. I know. But the the next film was 1973's The Last Detail, starring Jack Nicholson, uh, Randy Quaid, and Otis Young, with uh, appearances by Clifton James, Carol Kane, Michael Moriarty, Nancy Allen, mm. and uh, and even uh, like a two seconds before SNL, Gilda Radner in yeah. this movie. Um, and and written by Robert Town, who's one of the greatest uh, screenwriters that ever lived. Uh, he, the next year, he would end up doing Chinatown. Uh, he's, I mean, if you learned how to write a screenplay in the '90s, like I did, you learned by reading Robert Town scripts because yeah, you, you find them at every bookstore. Like he was, he was the guy, and he's still with us. So as far as I know, he still is the guy. Uh, but uh, what what's your experience with the last detail? What did so this first was, off, I think this is the, the first one that I discovered of Ashby's. So let me for okay, first and foremost, when I when I pitched this, when I said the first film that will always come to my come to my mind is The Last Detail, more than any of his other films. Um my introduction to this film, weirdly enough, was because our mutual friend uh and and frequent uh guest on this podcast, Casey. It was his father, the notorious Big Peace, rest in, rest in peace, Big Pete. Um, it was Big Pete's favorite movie. If you knew Big Pete, I, I movies weren't really in that guy's favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> movies weren't in his wheelhouse per se. It wasn't something that he was necessarily, you know. Um, but Casey was like a big fan of it too. And so I remember watching it at his house, thinking literally just, okay, we'll watch this movie, and being twenty minutes into the movie and thinking this might be one of my favorite movies ever made. And that was, I don't know, 30, maybe, uh, no. Yeah, maybe almost like 27, 28 years ago. And that sentiment has never changed. Um, <laughs> it It is what I actually, I've gone on you know, record on a different podcast and saying I think it's one of the few, if not perfect, near perfect films ever made. The script, uh, obviously, um, as already mentioned, uh, brilliant. Um, the cast, perfect. It's it's an interesting departure for especially considering some films that are going to come later because you know it 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 centers around uh, uh I'll quickly give the synopsis so two sailors who don't know each other are being tasked with transporting uh, a sailor to a military prison um they have to take him across country because he was this like you, you know I think he's 19 in the movie this I think so fresh face kid played by a very young Randy Quaid, who is fucking phenomenal in this movie. 
people do not understand the acting chops that Randy Quaid had. Um, but they're tasked to take him across country uh, for stealing, not even stealing, for attempting to steal $40 from a polio fund. And he's going to serve eight years in a military prison. Um, and it basically becomes like a road movie in the truest sense of the, the definition. But it's about how these two sailors sort of, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's the story of three men, what it's like, what it was like first up to be a man in 1974, 75, I forget it's the actual 73, 73. Um, I thought it was 74, but yeah, it's 1973, but it's just a, it's, I, I'm, I'm literally, my mind is going into something because I have such strong feelings about this movie. Um, I will let you, we can edit some of that because that was like me rambling, but, uh, but, um, what are your thoughts about it? How did you uh, come to? I I came across it because of uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, I've I've mentioned on this podcast, like I've been a Jack Nicholson fan my whole life, and this one was the one that was sitting on the video store counter that had all the cuss words on the front, um, <laughs> <laughs> except for the on the poster. Uh, the the curse words were all kind of that uh, you know Popeye style, you know ampersand, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know hashtag. Uh, like it was, it was various characters instead of uh, <laughs> the full words. Um, but it just, it seemed to be so Jack Nicholson. Um, and so I picked it up. I mean, the poster is literally him shirtless with a sailor's cap on smoking a cigar. So it's like, yeah, I mean, he, he is the motherfucking shore patrol. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, so I thought it was going to be kind of a raucous comedy and it has elements of that. I mean, it is very, oh, yeah. very funny. But it's also absolutely gut wrenching. Um, yes, emotionally, uh, as you said, these these two guys in the Navy who don't really know each other, they just happen to be stationed at the same uh, same spot, waiting for their orders to come in, and they're given this detail to take this young kid up to the the brig in Portsmouth uh, for trying to lift forty bucks. Uh, the plot couldn't be simpler. Like that's yep. literally all it is. And uh, Nicholson is is one of these two guys. Otis Young is the other one. Uh, they both got some like serious naval experience under their belt. Either one of like they they call this the shit detail because they, it's way above their kind of their rank, their position in the in the navy to be doing something like this. This is just something they've been assigned because they're waiting. Uh, and so their plan is since they get a per diem and they get like seven days to take them up there, uh, and because Randy Quaid's character Meadows gets a per diem as well. Their idea is let's get him up to Portsmouth as fast as we can, since they're the idea in their head is they're taking a criminal. Yeah, they they don't know what Meadows has done, so they have no reason to be sympathetic for him. Within well, like, they know the, what he's done because even when they say he like at the well, the well eight they years, know that he stole, but he like but they don't the, know they they don't know who he is, and it's not until they meet him do they go, oh, like yeah, yeah. But but their whole idea is let's get him there as fast as we can and then just take our time back, like splitting up his money between us and the rest of ours and like have some fun getting back home. And so, yeah, as soon as they're on the road with him and they start to find out some certain things like that, he's a kleptomaniac. So he he's literally like he didn't take the forty dollars because he was greedy. He didn't try to take the forty dollars because nope. he's an asshole or that he doesn't like the charity. Uh, he took it because he was compelled to the same way that he stole carrots from a market when they were, you know, stopped between stations. Yep. And they realize, you know, this this young kid, like, he hasn't really 
lived. He, he yep. hasn't really had friends. He hasn't, you know, find out he's a virgin. They find, you know, he hasn't really gotten drunk. And so they decide they're going to show him the goddamn time of his life, which is what the whole curse word laden rant on the front of the video box or on the poster. <laughs> uh, they're they're going to show him the time of his life, getting him up there. And it starts, you start to ask the question and they ask this amongst themselves as well. Are they making this worse by showing him what yeah. he's now going to be missing while he's in there? Was it, would it have been better to take him up there as a blank slate who, you know, he's not angry at anybody. It's, it's, Jack Nicholson and Otis Young, they're angry on his behalf. Yeah. But Randy Quaid's just taken it. Would it, you know, and it asks that question. It asks it of the audience and it never gives us an answer because that's how Ashby works. Ashby's great at asking questions and not providing the answer uh, because that's life. But yeah, was he better off before he met uh, <laughs> badass Badusky and and mm-hmm. Hall, the uh, the two guys taking him to prison? Because now he has something to miss. It's not that he has something to look forward to when he gets out because he's not going to go and suddenly become badass Badusky part two. This is kind of his one chance in life to have this much living in, in a condensed period of time. So to have the time of your life before you spend eight years behind bars, it probably it, it, there's even ethical elements yeah. to that question. And, and it drives these, these three uh, sailors crazy. Uh, the entire way up, you know, debating whether or not this is the right thing. There's conversations going on between Badass and Mulhall about whether this is the right thing to do. There's, you know, Meadows has so many questions. Um, He's so defeatist, you know, like he keeps on being the buzzkill because they're having a great time drinking. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure going to miss this beer up in Portsmouth, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but these these characters are such unique personalities, each one of them. And um, Nicholson's badass Badusky, the way they like nobody flies off the handle like like Nicholson, and yeah. and he's in top form here. The the whole I am the motherfucking shore patrol, where they oh. they go they find out that Meadows is never well, actually. I think this is before they even find out he hasn't been drunk. It's just they're gonna go and get a beer because they missed the train. And they get into the bar and they're in their military uniforms. And the bartender says, well, law, law says I got to serve him, but I'm not going to serve this guy because he's not, eight, you know, he's not 21. Um, and the him being referred to as Mulhall, who, who is black, of course. And this sets off Badusky and he he goes off on on a on a tirade that in all actuality is not how I, I would like our shore patrol to be behaving. But, <laughs> Uh, but it's so fucking satisfying in the context of the movie. Uh, I love but, it. but again, it's Ashby touching on class and on on the hierarchy of power and racism. And even, yeah, and it even starts to ask the question, like you know, badass and Mulhall. They're tied to the Navy itself. Like, yes, they're taking Meadows up to prison, but their lives are completely, you know scheduled and routined and like they seem like a couple of wild guys or especially Badusky seems yeah. like like he would possibly hate the military but it, it seems to bring order into his life so yeah there, there's god there's so many questions this is a really deep movie for having almost no plot um but <laughs> in the meantime you get so many sort of like dated 70s moments like you know the free love movement of course but also you know the namio Harenge kill rants and yeah, uh, uh, chanting in in not rant, uh, chanting in New York City, and yeah, it, it's so very it's much so hip. It's almost going to get him late. Yeah, 
uh, all these things that like set it so distinctly in this time and place in 1973, but at the same time, the movie itself just doesn't seem to have an era. It's so timeless. I don't know if that's because of the military setting or or what exactly it is, but uh, but yeah, I I I could probably write a a whole like essay on the psychological makeup of all three of these characters. You feel like you get to know them so well as the story goes on. And this last time watching it, there's a beautiful 4K that Shout Factory just put out. But the last time I watched it, it was the first time I realized, and I can't believe it took me like seven or eight times of watching the movie to to pick up on this. Badusky is like the loudmouth, and he's you know the the quote unquote cool one. Like he's the one that our eyes are attracted to because he's Jack Nicholson, and you know because he's <laughs> his name is badass. His name is badass, and uh, yeah, he, he's just he's clearly the character to watch. I mean, it's deceptive because there's a lot going on between Mohal and Meadows as well. But yeah, one thing I didn't notice before is that badass is the only one in the entire movie that strikes out with every woman he tries with. Yeah. For all of his loud mouthness for that, that great sequence where they get completely drunk and you know, cause it was 1973. This is probably really Jack Nicholson drunk <laughs> uh, uh, trying to like, get into a fight in the hotel room just to get into a fight. Right. Uh, you know, doing, doing his whole, um, <laughs> I, I can't even think of the, the lines at this point. Um, but yeah, but for all of his, his bragging, don't never get mad his, just for the sake of getting mad. Yeah. For, for all of his, all that is madness, so to speak. Uh, when they finally get to the party where there's women, you know, Meadows is, is winning them over cause he's sweet and sensitive and, inexperienced and innocent and kind of dopey but in a sweet yeah exactly he's kind of a gentle giant which is not how he was written he was written to be a smaller guy Uh, bud court was desperate to get this part and ashby put his foot down and said no uh because even though he was written as this kind of diminutive uh tiny guy he knew that someone like randy quaid john travolta almost got it he was minutes away from getting it and then they saw randy quaid uh but that sort of gentle doofus yeah. was was the way to go and not uh you know bookwormy and and yeah uh the way that i think but yeah maybe. like in the movie he's like kind of like just a almost like a homeschooly kind of corn-fed small town bumpkin kind of exactly um, and it was i mean it was played perfectly so but yeah even he like when he finally gets to the girl's room and he thinks he's he's gonna get laid she ends up wanting to chant with him instead. Um, yeah. But but the way that she offers the chanting, it's still a level of like intimacy that she's offering yeah. him. And you get the feeling actually that like if Meadows was a little bit more high pressure about it, he probably could have gotten that out of this situation too, but it's not in his nature and it's not in her nature and it's perfectly fine. Um, they end up going to New York city and he, he ends up having his first experience with Carol Kane as a prostitute. But at that party sequence yeah like the sensitivity that meadows shows and that mulhall shows when he's talking like it's not that mulhall is a particularly sensitive type of person uh but he's speaking the truth he's speaking as a human being yeah there's nicholson smoking a joint off in the corner like trying to tell nancy allen about how he's married to the sea and trying to show her hand signals and trying to like brag about manhood and making dirty jokes about yodeling in the canyon and all the things that make badass badass. But it's pretty evident that he's the only guy who's not getting laid at this party. And I don't know why he's never occurred to me that badass is the one that's awful with women. 
but there's I so think much... that's such a great layer to the character. Yeah. It proves yeah. there's something new every time you see an Ashby movie. So a few, few things. First off, one, one thing about that scene specifically that I've, I've the always party, found so interesting. is The party scene? What about? The, party the party scene. scene was first off, Hal Ashby was very notoriously, very liberal, very left-wing, very anti-war. Yeah. So we'll talk about more of that in a, in a film specifically. <laughs> this is um, the guy who made two movies in the 70s that took place in 1968. Yeah. And so it's weird because, first off, this film is literally about three people in the armed services. Uh, it's their story. And in that party scene, the fucking quote-unquote, like, like the hippie liberal you know, sophisticates at this party are kind of seen as kind of obnoxious blowhards, you know, and, and you know, a little arrogant. And I, I actually really enjoyed that because it, it does show that like, you know, things aren't as black and white and, you know, and it, you, the whole point of this is like, and what I love about that scene is like, at one point there's a guy who's basically trying to, you know, basically he's badgering Mulhall about like, tell me that there's nothing about Richard Nixon that you, you don't like. And, and you Mulhall just doesn't give a shit. He's not like he's not political. He's in this because it's it gave him uh, it you know provided his mother with some like pride in him and it has some re- and it's like he's just a guy. He's just like you know he doesn't care about your political agenda and he's not he's literally just a guy and he's being badgered by this blowhard. And I thought it was such a great scene because it. It's there's more truth and reality in that scene than I think most people would probably take away from it. And I like that the, these Lily are e- each one is very distinct. They're at points each one of their personalities almost cartoonishly, especially with with but then uh, with badass and with uh, uh, Meadows. Um, and I do think that it's and I think um, um, not Leon. What was his the actor's name? Um, Moho. Anyways, oh, Otis Young. Oh, he's young. Thank you. I think he he's actually phenomenal in this movie. And he is the least like sort of bravado. Like he doesn't his character isn't showy, but I think he's always like at least the voice of reason, the closest to voice of reason. He might um, have the hardest job on this movie, which is to be the counterbalance to Jack. The straight man. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, and he he's great in every scene he's in. There's the whole speech of but when they're like they go to the whorehouse and they're waiting for you know, uh, well, we'll talk about it in a second, but the whole scene where they're like talking about how when Bud was married and he talks about like how his, he's married to this, you know, this quiet little shy girl and in, in, I forget, was it Torrance? Uh, I think so. Uh, and he's like, she basically, basically talking about how things she wanted him to be a TV repairman and he just couldn't. And you realize he's not, he's kind of, he isn't as badass as he makes himself seem. If anything, he's probably has a short fuse, but he, he again, he's he's kind of a he's also kind of a nitwit, and in in a very real, honest way, it's he's probably full of bravado, and he probably does have like you said so perfectly, and you know it's not something I've seen, but again, he he seems like he, he hates authority. The very first scene in the movie is him basically being uh, told that the I, I don't know the what ranking he's supposed to be, but the the the, the you know he's being summoned, officer, yeah. And he's basically telling that the guy that's coming to summon to tell the other guy to go fuck himself. Yeah, and you can just tell this guy to fuck himself. Yeah. And he's like smoke a cigar. I don't know if he's drunk or just woke up, but it just he's so anti authority. But again, as you said, like, and again, I'm not something I've I've ever seen, but like he you're like, why would this guy be in the and he's the whole point of the movie is both 
uh, badass and Moho are trying. They're waiting for their orders to ship to 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 leave. They're waiting literally for their quote unquote the last detail. That, but literally he's in it because he doesn't have any other choice. And again, like you said, it's literally it gives him some sort of regiment to his life. But and that's what I love about it. It's so nuanced, and there's so much that's not on the page or not in the dialogue that is inferred. That it's a movie that again, I've it's probably the most of any of the films I've seen on. I mean, maybe Mayor Lamont is close, but I don't know how many times I've seen it. Well over, I mean, at least a dozen. And every time I'm just as in the film as as you know as I was the last time. Anyways, I'm sorry. Vice again that that party scene. There's a lot going on in that scene. Yeah, there's there's a ton going on. There's a lot going on under under the surface of this one, which again, like I said, has almost no real plot. It's it's all meaning. I mean, it's all little moments to teach Meadows lessons. Like there's an entire sequence where they go to a diner, and the entire point of it is to show that Meadows likes to have his cheese melted on his burger, and he doesn't get cheese melted on his burger, and and Badass shows him how to send it back. Yeah. Um. And 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 I think it's cool that Badass isn't a dick to the waitress either. Like no. Nope. Like, hey, uh, can we melt the cheese on here for the chief, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, for some reason, whenever Jack Nicholson is in a in a diner in a film, it's a it's I don't know. At least <laughs> it's always a an interesting interaction. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and that's what's so beautiful about the film is that it's literally it's just these two guys who probably see a little bit of the uh, the younger version of themselves. They also see their own frustrations with how their life has been and where they're at and you know like in the navy having to take orders they see the unjust and that's i think more than anything the point of is like true justice doesn't exist this fucking kid is getting eight years in military prison for attempting to steal 40 bucks like you said that he didn't even wasn't doing it to be greedy or malicious he's because he literally has and it just because it was the cheat co whatever like the some big wigs wife it was her charity she was really called the polio is like her favorite charity so they're making an example of this kid and it's about there's no job i mean this his kid's getting railroaded and it's these two guys who aren't inherently uh, altruistic but they sort of see this kid and their heart breaks from a little bit and they're trying to do something nice for him even though shit keeps going wrong or that like you know he, he's the la- the last half hour is Maybe not even the last. The last like fifteen minutes are so sad and so well written and well acted and like, oh, anyways, it's yeah, it's anyways. I I mean, there's so much going on that like you can infer, but like the fact that again, it's not you know, it's not you know the Manchurian Candidate. It's not. It's a very simple story, but it's all about the performance and the dialogue and the characters, and it's yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, perfectly done. I I can't imagine anybody else in the film, but of course there were other people that were considered for the film. Um, there was one uh, trio that was pitched by Peter Goober, the one of the heads of Columbia at the time. Everyone knows who Peter Goober is, I guess, if you look through the eighties. But Nicholson was always the top choice for Badusky, but he was busy making The King of Marvin Gardens. I believe that was with Bob Rafelson. Um, that's a really good movie in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, but Goober told the producer, like, hey, we don't have time to wait for Nicholson. I can get you Burt Reynolds, Jim Brown, and David Cassidy right now. And we'll <laughs> prove this and green light it. And I can't think of three actors. Well, I, mean, I like David Cassidy as a singer. I don't know about 
acting, but uh, <laughs> but Burt Reynolds and Jim Brown could have pulled this off, but I don't think I I still don't think I would rather see that movie. Yeah, that's interesting. I like Jim Brown, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, Robert I, I, England I, also tried out for the role of Meadows. By the way, I thought you might find that. I think he would have been great, honestly. And honestly, I, I think he would have been great. Yeah, um, I, I think that would have gone towards the more. I mean, we think of England as a a big performer because of Freddy Krueger, but he, he's a pretty small guy, especially back then. Oh yeah, no, he was. I mean, I, again, I see him being more of like the role he played on V, which is like the kind of quirky. Yeah, um, but again, I just I like Robert England, and I. I I I wish he got more chances to you know actually act. Not I mean obviously if it's you walk into my without makeup, but yeah, exactly. I I love uh I love Robert England and I love Freddy Krueger. But anyways, yeah, that's interesting though. But it's funny because like Burt Reynolds in that role, it it's so and so in some ways there's a, some similarities between as far as like the bravado of how they play their characters. But you know Burt is more of a wink and a nod type of bravado and you know and there's a like i don't it's i don't know i mean that's a lot to that's a lot to digest reynolds would have done an interesting him and nicholson if they have anything in common it's the ability to balance the uh the difference between obnoxious and charming yeah yeah, absolutely but yeah i i don't i don't know how the scene would have gone down the scene might not have even have existed the same way but i don't see Reynolds nailing the I am the motherfucking shore patrol scene. No. Like it's no. <laughs> but again, I mean I think he would have done it more as like a cool way to do it. Well, whatever the script was is really probably most likely how it would have been. And I think Nicholson yeah. was improvising, which is what how Ashby did it. Because how Ashby came from the editing world, he knew what was gonna work once he had it in the can. So he was not a storyboard type director. He was not a stick to the script type director. He's very much a collaborator. And he knew as long as he had the coverage, he could make a movie out of it, uh, which is something that a lot of directors don't have. I mean, I don't think I would have that innate sense being on the set of like, yeah, okay, I know I've got this without having to redo the scene to the script. But uh, Nicholson was kind of the perfect person to play off of that. Uh, Oh, absolutely. And Nicholson came to bat, like Hal Ashby almost lost this one. First off, it was it was offered to Altman first, I think. I mean, these two kind of run parallel at this period yeah. of time, anyways, as as outsiders and two of my all time favorites. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, but the uh, Columbia was the studio that released this, and the reason they were petrified it seems like every studio that releases a movie attached to Hal Ashby has some reason to be like petrified, whether it be interracial romance or you know the uh, the age difference in Harold and Maude. And this, it was the vulgarity. It sat on the shelf. Uh, I guess apparently the original script within the first seven minutes, there were 342 fucks. <laughs> um, they got it cut down. Uh, they finally ended up with only 65 uses of the word in the entire movie. Uh-huh. We're still setting a record for, for that uh, period of time. You got to remember, MASH was the first movie to even say the word fuck, and it was three years prior to this. So Ashby was already turning one time into 65 times. Uh, so when you just say it by the numbers, it almost sounds tame. But when you're hearing it, it doesn't sound tame at all. But uh, yeah, Columbia refused to release it with that many uh, swear words. And Ashby refused to do anything like he and wasn't yeah. going to have it put out neutered of that. Um, in fact, uh, as uh, the writer Robert Town once said, this is the way people talk when they're powerless to act. They bitch. 
And so these characters are are really going through some emotional shit. So of course, yep. you know, on top of the fact that they're in the Navy, you know, and, and curse like a sailor is a, <laughs> a trope for a reason. <laughs> but anyway, so long story short, Ashby ended up persuading Columbia to release this, the Cannes Film Festival before it was released back home. Uh, and they begrudgingly went along and it was a huge success. And at that point they knew they could not alter the fucks in the movie. <laughs> and so it came out as it was. But uh I again I got to admire Ashby for I mean he was known for like they'd try to call him, he wouldn't answer the phone, he wouldn't return <laughs> calls. Uh with this one in particular, uh his editor, uh Robert C. Jones, who we met for the first time on this, but would become like a regular part of the Ashby crew. But Jones said that at a certain point while he was editing the movie, uh the studio wanted to just seize it from Ashby's control and do their own cut of it. And uh, Jones knew that Ashby wasn't going to be okay with that, but Ashby was in Europe trying to get Peter Sellers involved with being there. So this was years before being there even became a thing, but that's how far back being there goes. Uh, but Ashby wasn't there to fight for it. So Jones actually was the one who like called the attorneys and called the cops and told the studio, I'm not <laughs> going to let you in. And he protected the movie. And, uh, you know, gained a lot of favor for that. I, I kind of love stories like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and Nicholson stood up for all this. And Nicholson also stood up for Ashby when they were in Canada. They were they shot this on location at the places they were really going, which were primarily Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, New York City and Boston. They did not have permission from the Navy. The Navy didn't want to make this movie, which I can understand. So yeah. they weren't able to shoot on location for the naval bases. So they shot in Toronto and Ashby got busted with weed and uh, the studio was going to boot him for that. If you can believe that in 1973, uh, <laughs> but Nicholson stood up for him and said that he would walk if Ashby was fired. So Nicholson really kind of deserves some credit for, for keeping this movie intact and I don't know for, for coming to the protection of, of Ashby. I think that was, that's something that could have crushed Ashby and, and, frankly later did um, yeah and then the final thing i'll say before we move on um from this film just to mention it as kind of an incidental uh richard linklater later adapted the book last time I'm... flying which i still haven't seen i would maybe have something to say about it if i had seen it but it was brian cranston lawrence fishburne and steve carell as uh Badusky and mulhall and and meadows and in this case it was um Badusky runs a bar and Meadows comes in to his bar and lets him know that his son, Meadows' son, was killed in the Iraq war. So they have to go back to get the body. Um, I mean, not to Iraq, but they, they have to yeah. go and, and, and do all the things that have to be done in that unfortunate scenario. Uh, but it put these three characters together again, played by three more incredible actors and another incredible director who was clearly inspired by Ashby. Uh, but what, did you ever see it? Was it, uh, is it so once it left the theaters, I kind of forgot about it. It was on my list when it was out. And now I'm, I, I'm not, I think I'd probably have to hear it was a masterpiece to be motivated to look it up. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so as a giant, obviously fan of La the last detail and a giant fan of Linkletter, I did start watching it. There's, I, I did not finish it. I, I didn't, how am I trying to say this? I didn't stop watching it because it was bad. I stopped watching it because my hopes were too high. And 
I was a, as soon as they announced that Linklater was adapting the, not that novel, I was so excited. And then Brian Cranston, I don't, I don't know if I feel like the cat, like Lawrence Fisherman is fine. Brian Cranston as an older Jack or older version of Badansky, because again, like again, it's adapting a novel. So, but I wasn't feeling that the the casting was per, like living up to those roles in my head. Um, and again, Steve Carell's great. You know, they're all great actors. I just was about, to, there's a scene when Carell goes to visit Budansky in his bar, and it just didn't, I didn't, I'm like, this does not feel like a sequel to the last detailed movie. And that's not fair because, again, it is adapting, a, 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 it's adapting a book that had a pre, that the prequel was also, it just, I, I was like, I need to come back to this and maybe watch it again. The parts that I, I want were well, I mean, Linklater's a great filmmaker, so, the dialogue was no was, doubt. Yeah, but I just I it was definitely a case of uh, it was going to be hard to live up to my expectations. So yeah, it someday I'll probably come around to it. But uh, it's yeah, I was probably about 15, 20 minutes into it and realizing I wasn't loving it or that I was getting too grumpy about decisions. I think even the stark difference in in visuals between Steve Carell and and Randy Quaid. Uh, it sounds like they really cast Steve Carell from the book and not from the original. Yeah, exactly. Movie. Well, and that's the thing is, and that, and that, even knowing that it was a uh, more direct adaptation, which I think Linklater even said it was as much as he loved the film, it was more of you know adapting the book. It was just it was hard for me. And again, it's fully my own you know baggage coming into it. So, um, but again, Richard Linklater, great cast. So I'm sure it was. I mean, it got pretty good reviews if I if I remember, but. Maybe someday I'll, I'll I'll finish it. Yeah, I, if if I happen to be flipping through channels and it's on, I can see checking it out. But I it's I think I'd be like yeah, I think twenty minutes in, I'd be grabbing my four K off the shelf and popping in the last detail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, this brings us to the next film, which Hal Ashby, who's been quite prolific already for the seventies, took actually a couple years off now, uh, and in nineteen seventy five reemerged with shampoo which again is completely different from everything else he's ever made except for that it's thematically totally the same yeah Uh, it's (laughs) every one of these movies is just unmistakably hal ashby yet at the same time they're so different from one another like yeah shampoo is nothing like last detail is nothing like harold and maude harold and maude has definitely some dna with the landlord but um but yeah but yeah but shampoo First, Robert Town was back again as a writer, but uh, the other writer was was Warren Beatty, yeah. and one definitely gets the film that Hal Ash, the idea that uh, the feeling that Hal Ashby was hired to make a Warren Beatty film. You know, Beatty being kind of king shit of fuck mountain in Hollywood at that time. That being said, I still love it. I mean, I don't. I've said before on this podcast, I don't care what anybody says. I just it doesn't matter to me. I love Warren Beatty. Uh, I'll I'll watch even bad movies with Warren Beatty and enjoy him in it. Uh, and I know that's actually probably at this point not a majority opinion on <laughs> uh, the general consensus of of the star power of Warren Beatty. But I love Beatty. He's also uh, he's got Julie Christie, Goldie Hawn, Lee Grant is back again. This time yep. she'll win an Oscar. Uh, Carrie Fisher, her first film. Tony Bill, who every time I look at him, he's fucking fantastic, except for that every time I see him, I wish that he was Tom Skerritt because uh, <laughs> he's, he's got Tom Skerritt's mustache in this. And uh, it's got an amazing performance by 
probably the head of my Mount Rushmore of character actors, uh, Jack Warden. Um, he will come up again. Yes, he will. So what were your thoughts on Shampoo? Because this is this is an interesting one. And I think I, I actually think this is probably the most dated one that he made in the 70s, even though they've all got elements like the chanting and the last detail or or uh, even just uh, Park Slope looking like Park Slope and <laughs> the landlord. Um, but I feel like this film is very dated, sometimes not in its favor, other times kind of pleasingly and charmingly so. Uh, what do you think of Shampoo? I really love it. I love it as a character study film. I love it, obviously, so, I mean, it's it's loosely based off of the life of notorious Hollywood producer John Peters. And Jay Sebring. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's I like, one of my favorite things are well-written idiot characters or, or characters that are, like, kind of shallow and one-dimensional on appearance, but then you start to see more of the humanity of the character. And this is a great example of that, where you basically have, um, and again, I think Warren Beatty's great in it. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think a lesser actor, the character could have been far more unlikable. When I say um, it's dated, I, it, that's not. Oh no. It's, I, it's yeah, definitely I, I fucking love this movie. Though. Yeah. You know, Beatty's plays a hairdresser named George who is I mean, basically, he gets into hairdressing to sleep with beautiful women, and that's exactly what he does. He kind of hops around to different clients. He's he's sort of committed to Goldie Hawn, who's adorable in this, as always, because it's Goldie Hawn, and she's so great. And uh, who doesn't love Goldie Hawn? Um, who's like this aspiring actress, but he's sleeping with all these, you know, married women and all these people. But he's basically a himbo. But he's also really frustrated because he works at this salon and he knows that he's like the rock star hairstylist, but he, he wants to have his own salon. He wants to open up his own, he wants to be his own boss, but you know, he, he says, can't... I'm better. I'm better than the guy I work for is what yeah. he says when he's asking for a loan. And you know, the guy he works for is you like this, like cheap asshole, like right away, just a cartoonish like a uh, uh, character. But Beatty's whole thing is that he, he just, he's too, he doesn't take anything seriously enough. And even though he wants to be his own boss, he doesn't work really work hard enough. He just wants to complain and sleep with beautiful women. And he, he's constantly having to lie to these women. But the whole conceit of the movie is that one of the women he's sleeping with, she tells him about her husband, who is, I don't even really know. He's a rich guy. He's, he's, uh, I don't know exactly. He's, he invests in companies, but. Yeah, a lot of the rich people in these movies, you're never quite sure what they do. They just do, yeah. They're They're just ambiguously rich. rich. Yeah. And when he goes to meet this guy to talk him into giving him a loan or to be a business partner with him, he finds out that the dude is sleeping with he's he's his his mistress is actually George's old one of the old women he used to sleep with. And you kind of get the impression that it was sort of like the his first actual love. And then it become what's up? He's only like the only person that he had. Oh yeah, they, yeah, exactly. His only true love. And it, from there, it's basically it becomes you know um, what happened, what the ramifications of this sort of. I mean, it's not even in. Uh, it's this this big mess that he's created from his love life, um, love in quotations. Uh, and it's really not. I mean, it, you know, again, there's a political element because you know it takes place on the um, eve of richard nixon's um presidency yeah, it's election night 1968 yeah 
And uh, you, it's juxtaposed between the whole conceit is that, um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on the, the, his, the character's name. The, um, I'm blanking on everybody. Oh, name. Jack Warden's name. Yeah, Jack, what is his character's name? Oh, God. Oh, I'm never going to figure it out now, but we'll just say Jack Warden. <laughs> yeah, I love Jack Warden, but I, I like to to, uh, to to say the character's name. Anyways, the Jack Warden character is convinced that he's gay because, of course, he's a hairdresser. Yeah, that, and so that's he how feels... George has been so successful with all these wives is because the stereotype of a hairdresser is is homosexuality. So all these men, all these married men feel perfectly safe letting their wife spend time with them. And in reality, I mean, he doesn't give two shits about cutting hair. He even says, I went to beauty school so that I could fuck women. Yeah. And he just happens to be really good at it. Yeah. But like he basically feels comfortable and he's like, hey, you need to take my my girlfriend, uh, you know, escorted to this party because he's like super jealous. And uh, but I, my point to that was like he basically escorts this the girl to um, this this like fancy party, this like uptight party. And it's all these like rich conservatives who are like kind of waiting for, you know, an election night. Yeah, and then it's the it's the Republican election night post party at the bistro in in Beverly Hills. Hills, and then you go from that to a much more hippie, you know, uh, counterculture party. And there's all these in all this films, politics and that stuff, and class war and all this stuff is is definitely plays a part in it. Yeah, and there's really Tarantino was not inspired in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to recreate the party in the last portion of this movie. Yeah, like that. Uh, the party at the Playboy Mansion looked and felt like the party at the end of Shampoo to Me. It's literally much like the last detail. It's it's not so much the story as it is the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it it's it's tragic. I mean, the, as they all start to realize that they're all fucking George. Yep, and and he has this whole rub like when when the shit is the fan, and there's a scene where like. Warden is drunk at this party and he's with Jill, who's the character Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn's character, who's who is kind of the closest thing George has to like a girlfriend. She's there with this Hollywood director that she's kind of leading on because she wants a role in his movie. And also Anyways, because she wants to make George jealous. And and obviously that's a big thing because she doesn't feel like she ever has George's full attention. Anyways, they're they're at this party, this Bohemian party, and they're like kind of walking around the party and there's like a, I don't know if it's like a, a beach house or like a, or like a pool house or whatever, but they like Jack Warden sees people in there fucking. And he's Lester. Like, His name's Lester. Lester. I knew it started with an L. <laughs> Lester's like, he's like, that's some good fucking, you know, and uh, <laughs> that's that, <some> good fucking. <laughs> and no then idea the, he's talking about his mistress and foreign baby. And the, and the quote unquote gay hairdresser. But yeah, the, <laughs> The, the a refrigerator door kind of falls open and it, they become illuminated and shit hit the fan where there's this whole speech i won't ruin it but there's a very speech about you know this entire movie george has been lying to all the women in his life and you know saying that like that is that you know this one's sick and uh, all these you know all, all of the he, web doing that, this this juggling act he... yeah almost like a almost like a three's company uh episode uh <laughs> He's trying to multi multitask with his love life. But there's this whole speech when he finally sort of comes honest with the Jill character. And it's it's the first time you see George as some sort of 
self-awareness. And it's honestly really sad. And I think that one thing I love about films of the 70s is that, and not just, and not just you know, uh, Hal Ashby films, but just films of the 70s, is that you could have this like sort of com- sex comedy or, I mean, I, again, it, these Hal Ashby movies are almost indefinable as far as genre goes. But this sort of like, you know, again, it, it's about a hairdresser, male hairdresser who sleeps with all these women. It's on the surface, it's not super complex. But that sort of ends on a sort of kind of sad note or sort of like downbeat. And it, but it's also really, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's very interesting. It's an interesting movie. And again, I, I rented it from my local library when I lived in Alameda, California. Um, I was at ha- that point a big Hal Ashby fan, but I hadn't seen Shampoo yet. And again, I watched it with zero expectations outside of like, you know, I know it's Hal Ashby. I know Warren Beatty. I know uh, uh, Goldie Hawn, but that's really all I know. I think I might have known the story, at least a little bit of John Peters because of, you know, his notorious weirdness in Hollywood. But I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, and I loved that it was sort of exactly both exactly what I thought it was going to be, but also completely different in a lot of ways than what I thought it was going to be. But yes, yeah, it definitely here, the first time I saw it, I, I saw it for the first time about 20 years ago ish. And yeah, I had always thought of it as a sex comedy, which it is. It is, but it's but, so much more. Yeah. Like it, it does not fit kind of what my definition of a sex comedy from the seventies was at the time. Um, no. it, it's got a lot more deeper meaning and, and it's not just everybody sleeping with everybody and how wild it's. Yeah. It, it's really not People... even that everybody's sleeping with everybody. It's, it's the George is sleeping with everybody. Cause at one point he's got Lee Grant, who I mentioned won an Oscar for this. Yeah. Lee Grant is married to Lester, right? So he's sleeping with Lee Grant. She sends him to Lester to her husband to talk about money. When he's there, he finds out that Lester is having an affair with a woman named Jackie, mm-hmm. who, as you said, was uh, Warren or uh, George's former flame. Now, and now Lester was not interested in doing business with George when he thought that this is my wife's hairdresser. He suddenly gets interested when he finds out that his mistress also knows of George's reputation as a hairdresser. Yeah. Like the psychology of all of this. And so, you know, they start talking in in Lester's office and then they're they're walking George out of the office before they go to the party for the night. And um, Lester mentions that George does Cynthia, his wife's hair as well. And you can actually see the expression on julie christie's face as she realizes oh my ex-boyfriend is probably boinking the wife of like my secret lover yeah and and and, and later on in the movie she's trying to get the truth out of him are you sleeping with her and he's not giving up the goods but then she ends up sleeping with him yes and lester comes in and they play up the whole you know it was a three's company moment yeah. Where they play up the homosexuality. In fact, now that I think about it, there's no way that that angle of Three's Company was not inspired by shampoo. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, everybody's in bed with everybody. And and then poor Goldie Hawn is the only one that doesn't realize she's being manipulated. But also she's been put out so much that she's playing games herself with, with yeah. uh, Tony Bill, who's directing this commercial she wants to be in. And she's kind I, of actually liking him. I, I have to say this very quickly. It wasn't until probably my, it wasn't until well after I saw Shampoo for the first time that I didn't realize that it wasn't Tom Skerritt. The entire first <laughs> time I saw it, I literally thought it was Tom Skerritt. 
Um, He's got Scarrett's mustache. And Scarrett, yeah, to he, be fair, Scarrett is cameos in uh, Harold and Maude as a cop. So I did not know that. But he's the cop that pulls them over when uh, Maude has stolen a car. Oh yeah, and then, God, there's so much <laughs> to talk, I could talk about. That that's a really great scene, and it also shows how there's more to Maude than just being a free spirit. How she is kind of she's a very sharp and, yeah. and a little devious. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, but. Uh, Two things real quick. First off, and also that Jackie is Jill's really good friend. Yes. So there's that wrinkle as well that, that, yeah, Julie Christie and Goldie Hawn are both close friends. And of course, they know about their past and present. Yes. So that part's not a secret, but the fact that they are hooking back up again. And and, now Jackie is. And it's all coming to a head at this Republican Party at the Bistro in Beverly Hills on the night of Richard Nixon's election in 1968, uh, where this party goes from being like the, you know, uptight, you know, conservative, you know, gathering that it was going to be to suddenly being Julie Christie, you know, getting drunk and telling William Castle that she wants to suck Warren Beatty's cock right at the dinner table. Um, So it's it's almost no context for what I just said, but it's a really, really funny scene. But the person who really gets to the heart of it in a way is Goldie Hawn. She's the only one that he really gets honest with in the body of the movie as well, where, uh, where he, she wants to know the truth. And he's like, honey, I, I fucked them all. Like implying that he fucked all the women in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Um, But she's the one who says, you never stop moving. You never go anywhere. Where? great line and he's standing in his own way basically and he could maybe get his business off the ground if he wasn't so busy desperately juggling all of these relationships that he has with these women because he has professional and personal relationships oh and might i add poor lester who george is now sleeping with his wife and his mistress george also takes the time in the movie to go sleep with his daughter too um played by carrie fisher (laughs) yeah which is very Um, awkward scene um, yes uh yeah. that's part of what i've said doesn't age well in this movie because she's she's playing like a 15 year old but uh warren Beatty talked about the promiscuity of the promiscuity of the of the love generation which is part of why they said it in 1968 yeah warren Beatty doesn't give interviews often so so this stuck in my head he was talking about the promiscuity of the love generation and how that wasn't actually going to lead to love. And he was fully admitting that like, yes, I was having too much fun at the time that that was made. And he was legitimately like having an affair with Goldie Hawn while in a relationship with Julie Christie on the set of that movie. But he claims that it was his idea to set it in 68 on the night that Nixon got elected because he wanted to point out that there's also such a thing as political promiscuity. So George is out here sleeping with everyone but so were the politicians and he didn't want to get partisan about, I mean, he was partisan because Beatty was in the seventies. People thought Beatty was going to run for president, not right. Yeah. And, and Beatty was going to run as a Democrat. So, so Beatty's a very outspoken liberal. So of course, and of course this was 1975, this was released while Nixon was still in office, but Nixon would resign 10 days after shampoo came out. But the promiscuity of, of like, he was trying to show that politicians are doing the same thing that George is doing. They're all sleeping with so many people politically like, Oh yes, I'm going to do everything I can about your cause. And you were the most important person in the world and And turning around and saying it to the next person. And it's not even that they're lying per se. Yes. It's an absolute bald faced lie, 
but you can tell that George kind of emotionally doesn't want to make anyone upset. No, well, that's like he's he's a trying to save his ass, which is the primary thing he's doing, but b trying not to like be unpleasant or give anybody a bad day. So yeah. his his point that that is a political thing is very true. There are people who say things politically; they have no intention of ever helping your cause. But it's easier and nicer to tell you that your cause is the most important thing on their docket and then turn around and work on something else or nothing at all after that. I real, real quick, there's a great moment where, well, again, it's just memorable dialogue, but there's a scene at the party where Lee Grant, the whole movie, George is told, has been lying to Lee Grant and saying that the Jill character is just a client and she's sick and he's helping her with her sickness. The thing she has like some pancreatic ulcer or something but yeah but at this point at this party he's 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 juggling too many things and he's like frazzled and she goes is that the girl with the pancreatic ulcer and he goes i don't know and it's just this (laughs) moment where he can't even keep his life like how do you not know but but he also sells it so perfectly and again it's a role that doesn't have a lot of meat on the bone at first viewing but warren Beatty does it perfectly and he juggles it perfectly and he juggles the sort of yeah, somehow simple the pool gets deeper every time you go in on shampoo yeah one one thing that i always thought was interesting too talking about the gay thing which again even that like you know the whole scene with carrie fisher besides the sleeping with her like like there's like are you you know yeah, so it's a lot of yeah. non-pc language being used but at no point like he never cops to anything even to being gay he never goes like no He's always like kind of dancing the line of being like honest about when she basically asks if he's gay. I think he says sure. Like, and it's there's no reason to even assume that the character's even bi. Yeah, uh, he's just telling people what they want to hear because it's gonna give them a better day and possibly yeah. get him something out of it too. Well, I also think because he knows he he's using things to his advantage because it he's so in so many lies. But is it great to know why he why she wants to know if he's gay? Yeah, they, she finally exactly. says because I want to know if you're making it with my mother. Mom. And he says, Why does that matter? And then he says Exactly. He's so yeah. And then say, he starts to answer matter? questions with other questions. Like, Question. so are you making it with my mom? Has anyone ever done your hair? You know, yeah. like he's he's always kind of trying to dodge it until yeah. she until she finally says, You want to fuck? fuck. Yeah. And then we cut to somewhere else and then we come back later and lee grant realizes what happens but lee grant is so like repressed in her own waspy environment with her cheating husband lester Mm -hmm. that she the first thing she does when she finds out she doesn't verbalize it she doesn't say i busted you he knows he's busted yeah it's very obvious what happened and everyone involved knows what happened she walks in and he's buckling his pants yeah. he's buckling like he's coming out of the bathroom buckling his pants he's like why are you in her bathroom like in her bedroom but uh yeah and then she, he goes to do her hair but then she's trying to jump his bones like right after yeah. she made that discovery yeah uh which is i believe her showing her frailty in what george provides for her george makes her feel beautiful and now it's almost like she realizes that she has new competition like and she just she feels bad she feels sick and the only thing that's going to make her feel better is to have her hair done and get hair laid, done which is well that's what's so there is that and it's it's a through line throughout the whole film where women are getting jealous that george is doing their hair it's yeah. the equating that attention and that george's ability to beautify them in the same realm as sleeping with him 
it's that thing of like they have his attention he's doing something for them and like it's a really interesting thing it's it's funny because the first time i saw that i was like you know there's this part where like you all you never you always do her hair i mean you don't do my hair and it's this jealousy and it's like there's a lot going on here and and how they see it and what it means to them and there is so much being said in the movie about promiscuity and about relationships and about people seeking love and validation in in a way that on the surface can seem very you know almost cynical but at the heart especially by the end of it is very there's it is a very like tragic romance that is happening through it especially with the george character at the very end yeah it's it's a movie that you already said but again it's definitely like you said perfectly like the pool gets deeper every time you sort of jump in it it's a movie that like it, to this day i'll hear people say oh it's you know it's not one of his best i'm like it's i think it's better than some of the other films and i think it's better than some of the films that won that he's done that have won awards but um yeah. is it is you know it, it well we'll get there well before it gets too much later let's um we should probably move on i mean i could as i've said before there's about 10 15 minutes i could add on to each one of these movies same um, same we haven't done one with this many movies in it in, in quite some time so i don't feel that either one of us will have a tremendous amount to say about 1976's bound for glory it is the film of his i like the least yeah um, but, my... but, but i like the way that you said that because i can't say that i dislike this movie or that i'll no, never it... watch it again I own every single one of these, by the way. <laughs> so it's funny. I have a funny story. So my friend, Zach, Zach, if you're listening, shout out to Zach, Zach Losers, um, phenomenal Hi, musician, phenomenal musician in the Bay Area. He actually gave me his copy of this. He knew I liked how I feel. And we, 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 at that point, I think we, we had probably been discussing the music, Woody Guthrie and folk music. But he gave it to me. And then I literally, maybe a year later, I totally forgot I owned it and went to... Uh, I don't remember it was Amoeba or Rasputin, and I saw it for cheap, and I was like, "Oh shit, how lucky you moved it on!" And I bought it. And I came home to film myself, <laughs> realized I had it. Then I tried to sell it back to where the cop was like, oh, "I'll just sell it back." And then I bought it for five bucks, and then maybe I'll get a dollar for it. And they wouldn't take it, and I was like, "I literally bought this movie from you." Anyways, um, but uh, as a person that worked at Warehouse Music, I've been on that side of the counter many times. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah. So- but uh, I just bought this last week. I'm sorry. It's it's only worth fifty cents to us today. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wasn't even mad because I, I I only paid I, I only paid a few bucks. For it. But I was just that's weird. But all right. Um. So uh, I think I might have given my I might have might have given it to Joe. I don't know, or I might have given Zach uh, Zach it back. I don't remember. Anyways, um, here's my feelings on it. I will sum this up. I have seen the movie once, even though I've owned two copies of it. <laughs> I've seen it once. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think visually, visually, it's beautiful, um, stunning. Uh, the first Steadicam movie, first use of a Steadicam in motion picture history, despite everybody on Earth somehow believing it was uh, Rocky. <laughs> I don't. I, I've seen. I've really seen that even in print before. You know, and, and Haskell Wexler was the cinematographer yeah. on this who who used that who put that Steadicam to good use. And it's not even the Steadicam. Like when I think of this movie, and I think of the impressiveness. Of how mm. it looks, yes, the steady yeah. cam's part of it. Like it's this great shot of David Carradine as as Woody Guthrie walking through right. like all the migrant farmers, and you just get a sense of like the scope and the poverty and the dust. But to me, the shot that defines this movie is in the Dust Bowl before they leave home. There's a shot of the town where where Woody Guthrie and his family reside in Texas. In Texas, and this fucking 
dust cloud yeah. that is yes. descending on it like a fucking tsunami of doom. It made me yeah. fully realize for the first time what the Dust Bowl really meant because you hear that. It's, it's almost an ambiguous term. Oh, the Dust Bowl, or they would go through these dust storms. You don't think of it in that visual. You don't think of the dust being in their homes and them having to like wear masks and having visibility problems inside the house and breathing this shit. And this thing just completely overtaking the town. Like, like I guess maybe that's my own naivete. Maybe I'm stupid for for not having thought of it on that scope before. But it was that shot that made me realize, oh, this is what happened to the farms in America. This is yeah. This is it's fucking so, horrible. This is scary. Like it's, it's as frightening as a fucking tornado. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because literally that is the high point of the movie. But like, I also think it, well. Anyways, that that shot is probably my favorite thing about the whole movie, literally. Um, again, movie looks great. My very quick feelings. Number one, I think there's the danger of biopic films. And so this was based off of the autobiography written by Woody Guthrie that apparently was also admittedly had parts that were fictionalized and dramatized. Um, this movie's so fictionalized that literally the only characters that are based on fact are Woody Guthrie and his wife, Mary. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> kids are fictional. Uh, the character that Ronnie Cox plays, who's supposed to be this big union organizer, is fictional. Oddly enough, his wife, played by Melinda Dillon, Melinda Dillon plays two roles plays in this movie. Roles, which is what that's. <laughs> I, I've never looked. This isn't the movie I've like looked up. The I I knew enough about Woody Guthrie or like and whatever. I but I would love to if you know why she plays those two roles. Those I two do know girls. why. It was literally. Um, she had such a good time making the movie. It was her first big movie. She, of course, went on to do a lot of other Christmas things. Christmas Story. Like yeah. Christmas Story, probably most known for, but she was also uh, very good in Close Encounters with Third Kind. And, yeah. But anyways, yeah, Melinda Dillon had such a great time making this movie that when she left, she was, when her time was up, because the wife character is not no all that major of a character in this story. I mean, she's a major character, but she doesn't get a lot of screen time. No, um, because very... he's, he's kind of on the run from her a lot. Uh, yeah. Not, uh, not because she's awful, but because no. that's it's it's romanticized that Woody has you know the wandering spirit or whatever, and yeah. he's helping the people. Uh, in reality, he's just a dude that was running. Um, yeah, but uh, I think that trait tends to get romanticized a bit too much, especially during this period of time. But uh, yeah, the whole idea was that she was sad that she had to go home. And so Hal Ashby said, you know what? I'm going to make you uh, the person he sings with in the radio station, too. So she ends up becoming a second character, but they blackened her hair. Uh, See, OK, because that's so much more. I You look at it and you think there's got to be some metaphorical thing going on that he's singing in the studio with a woman that looks like his wife. So is it meant to be, you know, that I actually didn't even know his other wife or... I had to like wait till the credits were over to see if it was the play because I mean the the black hair does make her look different. Yeah, but it's also very obviously the same actress to me, and I was like, <laughs> but of course you think like oh like maybe she's a stand-in like even though you know you you try to in, it, like project all these like deep metaphors and but no I mean that's especially that's, on someone like Ashby exactly. But my my feeling on this is first off Caradine who. If it wasn't during the same time as Kung Fu, it must have been right after. If I'm mistaken, it was. It was he was. He was during that period where he was trying to prove that he was more than Kane from Kung Fu. Kane, 
he does as good as, with the material as you could, and he's definitely playing a very like three dimensional character. But I honestly feel like just the character is written was very flat. You know, he's supposed to be. You know, there's I okay. First off, the character starts off very unlikable. You know, the, there's I think a he whole remains scene. fairly unlikable. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, I was gonna say that, but yeah. I think they try to romanticize him and, and that he becomes like a conduit for the working class. But he never, no point during the movie did I be like, I like this guy. And and it's not Carradine's fault at all. He He's actually doing a very competent job with the material is given. Um, yeah, Carradine's good. My, here's my two problems, though. And it's with biopics in general, which unlike the rest of Hal Ashby's char- characters that he, he directs, who are very flawed, very... There's this reverence, it seems. It, it, biopics almost inherently have to treat the subject matter with this reverence because these are important people. They've done something important. They've. This is why we're making this movie. Is they they have hey, this. Woody important... Guthrie wrote, "This land is your land." After yeah, all, yeah, exactly. And it just comes off so disingenuous. Maybe I don't. It just bothers me. This... Biopics in nature, I always sort of approach with a little bit of hesitation, which is I... weird because again, as written, he's not like a. He's not like a especially likable character. He's not like this heroic figure, really. No, it's he's not... going off and having affairs. While I mean, he may be traveling to spread the word to the people, well, but but, it, but he's having affairs on the road, bro. And he's like literally like leaves his wife and and kids to go paint signs in quotations. And... But but I think that that's part of what Ashby's trying to show. I think yeah. Ashby's trying to show that like, here's this folk hero, like literally the definition of a folk hero, folk as, hero. as a folk singer who was an extraordinarily flawed person. And I think, you know, it's not, again, he, he's not trying to answer the questions for you. Like at one point, Woody becomes very successful with this radio show, no sure. which I don't even know if this, if this fucking it's happened real. because this whole, <laughs> I don't look at this as a biofilm. I, I, I know it's classified exactly. as such, um, but so much of has been admittedly fabricated that I don't know what, but he kind of finds himself in a, in a lonesome road situation. And then yeah. I do kind of consider, like, I do think that Ashby was referring to the Elliot Kazan film face in the crowd. Uh, with the conundrum that Woody had, which is that he was welcome to continue singing on his radio show, but he had to stop talking about unionization and, yeah. and the political elements of, of power to the people during the Great Depression. And um, while you've got all that going on, there's still that side of you, like he just called for his wife to come join him in California because now he had a gig on the radio and had a, a real job. And now he's being told now lonesome lonesome was a bad guy lonesome was a villain yeah. and lonesome has no family and that's the point of lonesome so he he's corruptible but when lonesome is rebellious and makes fun of his sponsors and things on the air in facing the crowd and gets himself in trouble lonesome only has lonesome to blame and and lonesome only has lonesome to take care of woody guthrie within the story i don't know how many kids he had in real life or what in actuality, like in, in this, he like comes home at one point and realizes that his wife must have taken the kids days ago. Uh, and he just is finding out about it now. But he refuses to go out and do the show. He's going to have his morals and he's he's yep. not going to cave to the sponsors who don't want him to incorporate his political message into his popular singing. And he has a wife and kid that he just brought from Texas to California and set up, you know, they, they were 
essentially living in a hovel and now they're living in like a, a suburban house they're not super wealthy but they're really fucking wealthy for the depression depression yeah um, that's yeah and you know even his his mentor who's played by ronnie cox who's also a union organizer and a musician which i any chance to see ronnie cox play a good guy i always love that <laughs> too i just gotta say i love ronnie cox but anyways when when he's faced with that conundrum it's different than lonesome rose because it's not a what do i stand for artistically it's okay do i continue to have this job so that i can feed my family because otherwise you know i'm gonna yeah. have to ship them back to like live with her sister in texas and i'm gonna have to get back on the railroads you know traveling from town to town so he doesn't answer that kind of conundrum for you which which i think is very ashby and this film has you know a lot of ashby elements yeah but ultimately it's it's about half an hour too long um, i was you literally took the word my biggest criticism especially for someone like ashby who's you know his start his career as a fantastic editor it movie is very first off it the movie feels very uneven and literally by the hour mark i was like looking at my watch and the it tone just, is way off and that will kill a running yes. time and it also happens to have a long running time but every yeah. other ashby movie ends either exactly when you want it to end or yeah, ends like with you wanting more and more. this one like i said i know i will probably watch it at least one more time in my life i'm glad i yeah. own it um it's not the one that i'm gonna like like if someone says well, I, I think we're both glory, I think I will defend it just a little bit, but I'm not gonna like die on that hill. Yeah, and I think both of us are being critical because the first of the entirety of this podcast will be you metaphorically sucking out Ashby's dick. But yeah. <laughs> uh because again, we're putting in juxtaposition with with the other work we're talking about. At no point would I argue it's a bad move. Like I said, I feel like I want to rave about Carradine's performance because he he does, he is he is doing a good job of acting in this movie. It's just, he wasn't, I don't think the script, he's more of a conduit for this. It just, yeah, I don't know. It's just compared to, uh, compared to, you know, Ruth as Maude or compared to Jack as badass or other characters in his films. It's just sort of, he doesn't have that, that lasting sort of, yeah. I, I don't know how to, but I mean, it's still very much a Hal Ashby character. They all have something, you know, oh, yeah. Hal, like, uh, you know, obviously Harold and Maude, I mentioned at the top of this that uh, Hal Ashby's father committed suicide at 12. And now he's got a character that's obsessed sure. with, uh, with his own mortality that keeps on faking suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, and they never speak of Harold's father, by the way. Nope. And then you've got like last detail, uh, you know, he's anti-authority, but Ashby is. Uh, but also he spent some time in his youth in a Naval Academy. So, you know, elements of the Naval Academy come through in that. And you look at Bound for Glory, how Ashby, when he was 19 years old, up and left his wife and child to like pursue a dream in Hollywood. Yep. So there's as much Ashby in this as there is in any of, of the other characters. There's as much of him in Woody Guthrie. I think the reason why it's tonally off and I think the reason why it's bloated even though you get like these wonderful moments, like like there's a re another a return of Randy Quaid, but also a very early appearance by uh, James Hong and uh, early appearance. Oh yeah, by, as the uh, yeah, yeah. Brian James shows up, and then that Wall shows up. I mean, just such a, a cavalcade of great faces. But this is the one film where I've heard that um, Ashby was was dipping into the white powder a little bit. Yeah, it was 1976. Yeah. And it does seem to have like the 
this actually even fits the puzzle with all of his contemporaries. You know, this is Simino's Heaven's Gate. This is uh, Scorsese's New York, New York. York. They all had these period pieces that they wanted to make while they were all on coke in the late 70s that ended up over bloated and ultimately had like all of those movies have like fine redeeming qualities, but none of them are the ones by those filmmakers that we are jumping to see or talk about. So I think of this as kind of Ashby's New York, New York or Ashby's Heaven's Gate or Ashby's 1941, if you want to go that far. This was like kind of his cocaine bloat movie. And I'll, I'll put this out there now because I don't know how much time we'll get to like to really talk about post 70s stuff, because I know we're going to once we're done talking about the movies, I have a feeling we're going to want to wrap quick. But um, part of why his 80s output is so criticized is because people say that he got burnt out on drugs. Yeah. That, uh, that he was just another 60s hippie burnout. Uh, the coke got to his head. He just wasn't making good movies anymore. That has been proven to be untrue. Um, oh. Only recently has that been proven to be untrue. It was very likely that there was a whisper campaign by the production company Lorimar, partly due to this movie when he did have a coke problem and he hung his hat on that coke problem saying like, yeah, I was doing too much coke with David Carradine while I was making that movie. And because he did a lot of, he smoked a lot of pot and took mushrooms from time to time, but smoked a lot of pot. So it was easy for the industry to just kind of say, yeah, yeah, Hal Ashby, he's a burnout. Um, but in actuality, it was because Lorimar didn't like Hal Ashby because he was anti-studio and he was anti-studio in every studio he worked for. So somebody there took it very personally and started this whisper campaign that trashed the rest of this man's career and labeled him as unworkable and unreliable. And every studio, when he did get work, the studio would steal the movie from him and recut it and release it in some subpar version. Uh, and this is this isn't just like speculation. Like there's actually I can't remember the name of the movie now, but he did another one with John Voight in the early 80s that was absolutely panned. People fucking hated it. And uh, Voight always claimed, no, that wasn't the movie we made, though. And he founded it in the UCLA archives, Voight, several years after Ashby died. And it got released on DVD and now has like a, a decent reputation as like maybe the final good Hal Ashby movie and the only good Hal Ashby movie from the 80s because John Voight found the version of it that was spared from the studios. So the studios just crushed this guy. But I, I wanted to bring it up here because he did admit to having a coke problem on the set of this movie. But every other movie he made, like he learned his lesson by his regrets on making this movie. Interesting. Yeah, literally, I've only ever heard that it was drugs that was his downfall. No, it was it was uh, a story planted by Lorimar. Uh, that, Fuck, that's crazy. That he was unreliable, and and the studios believed it because he was obstinate and pushy, and yep. probably kind of a dick to them because of his anti-authoritarianism streak, and yeah, and because he also was very upfront with that. Like he probably showed up to everything stoned. I mean, he he looked like a hippie. He had yeah. the long beard. He had the long hair. He like it was not hard for someone to believe that Hal Ashby was a junkie, except for that. He wasn't. he already he I know he had a reputation. I would even early into his directing career because he didn't give a shit about call. Like he slept on office floors and he didn't mm -hmm. he didn't give a shit about material possessions and other 
Hollywood lived like, for years in a bungalow on on a studio set uh, when he was editing movies. And it's like other people are like this guy's a wild guy, and he, the fact was he just he wasn't invested in what material wealth was going to bring him. He was literally just trying to make really good movies, and that that was his yeah. you know passion. And he didn't oh, die young crazy. because he abused. I mean, he did abuse his body. He didn't die young because of the drugs. He died young because he was a workaholic, and he would oh, spend like. eighteen hours working on an edit for a movie and that's and then he wouldn't answer the calls when the studio would say where's our movie um so they they would just it was easy to chalk up oh he's just high somewhere i'm so glad you brought that up because i mean that's really i I would have finished this podcast still laboring under the impression unfairly i guess that he was just a drug addict to no hal ashby had the the 1980s stolen from him that's crazy because admittedly yeah his 80s output yeah I mean, it's an immediate drop. It's a complete, yeah, it's and that's not to say that Al Ashby would have made every one of his 80s choices a, a brilliant choice. There's one he did with Robert Blake that supposedly just got awful, but that one with John Voight was supposed to be pretty good in the director's cut. I need to see that now. Uh, yeah, it's also the that. first appearance of uh, Angeline Jolie playing his daughter at like five years old. Um, and uh, he did another one called Eight Million Ways to Die, which turned out to be his final film that he made with Jeff Bridges, not Bo. That was going to be his version of a noir film, but it was also going to be his take on a person dealing with alcoholism. And that also got stolen by the studio. And according to Jeff Bridges, this movie was a masterpiece. But the movie that came out was like the most panned of his entire career. Yeah. And I just got that in the mail today. So I'm going to finally see that. But it just arrived. <laughs> uh, go to Kino.com, folks. Uh, Kino Lorber. The Kino Lorber has The Landlord and 8 Million Ways to Die available right now but they're they're both on sale for 10 bucks each on blu-ray but they're being liquidated because they're out of print so and i if you're curious about eight million ways to die like i am this is the way to got to get it you may not ever get a chance to see it again if you don't but the landlord i strongly encourage you pick up because you will want to rewatch that yeah agreed all right so that being said uh, did you have anything else to add i mean i could probably could think of things to add to bound for glory again it's I think we're kind of done with that one artistically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's gorgeous, it's gorgeous watch, movie, great performances. It, just the cinematography, the like the it, colors. The, it's, yeah, it's the they dust, make the brown and the yellow just gorgeous. Even yeah, they're, exactly. You know, they're dust colors. It's my least favorite, but it's still a solid film. So, the next one I I enjoy, but I don't. I mean, I don't need to spend a ton of time on it. Well, I think ironically, I have less to say about it, even though it was the most successful Hal Ashby movie. And this is yeah. 1978's Coming Home, yeah, which was uh, starring Jane Fonda, John Voight, Bruce Dern, uh, good old Derny, is what like became right. my favorite actor now. Uh, yep. The other Carradine, Robert, and Penelope Milford. Uh, now, this film, much in the same way that that Beatty gets a lot of the credit for Shampoo being a Beatty film that Ashby directed. Jane Fonda gets a lot of that same sort of yeah. credit. And, and it's not unwarranted. I, I feel like well, she produced it, right? Yeah. Well, they, they picked uh, and and the project came from her too. Like she, yeah. um, yeah. she hired somebody to write the article that it was based on so that she would have something to show the studios to give this story told. Yeah. Uh, and it was a passion project for hers for like six, seven, eight years. Cause you know, we all know Hannah, Hanoi Jane. Um, yeah. Lover or hater, I happen to love her. Uh, Same. Jane Fonda was an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War and was fucking awesome and righteous with that. 
and yeah. continued to be a fighter for the men and women that came back from that war and were treated like shit on their own home turf afterwards. Uh, and coming home is is kind of the product of that. In fact, it's it's uh, largely based not on the life, but on the personality and character of Ron Kovic, who was the uh, writer of Born on the Fourth of July. July. Yeah. Uh, came back from the Vietnam War in a wheelchair. Was was ultimately played by Tom Cruise in the uh, Oliver Stone Oliver film Stone. of the same name. And this is definitely, I mean, it reads like Jane Fonda's Passion Project. To me, it shows how much of a great collaborator Ashby was. And like I said, he directed everything as an editor. So all he had to know was that he had what he needed in the can to fix, to like set it up later, which made him the perfect collaborator for known perfectionists like Warren Beatty and Jane Fonda, because they could go as crazy as they wanted to. And and he would be like creatively supportive of that. So, uh, so when I say that these are their movies, I'm not meaning that they hired Ashby as like a hired hand. Um, he was invited to be a collaborator on these films that were very deeply personal to these two people. Yeah. I saw Coming Home most recently. It's the most recent one I've seen of Hal Ashby's, ironically, even though it's his biggest one. Um, so maybe you have more of a history with Coming Home, but what's your experience with it? Well, again, I have to give a shout out to the Alameda Public Library uh, in Alameda, California. Phenomenal library that had a huge library of Criterion films and just great film library. On the same weekend, I saw uh, Coming Home and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. So it was a oh, good... Wow. Good film weekend. Knowing at by the point though, I, I I was very familiar with Ashby's other films. Uh, this is definitely more of a just a very straightforward melodrama, um, a sort of romantic melodrama, but in no way no way is that even a criticism. Um, while yeah. it doesn't, it's it's just style, more approachable and yeah, and you can definitely see why it was you know uh, his most successful because it, it's it's very accessible. <laughs> the subject matter is. There's a lot, lot of drama to pull from there, but two things I'll say about it uh, off the top. Um, John Voight as a person, I have issues with, but goddamn it, John Voight as an actor when he was on his game, which to be fair, John Voight wasn't always on his game, but when given the right material, he's great. He was good in this. Um, yeah, I, I, I think very well put. I 100% agree with your summation of John Voight. Um, Jane Fonda is phenomenal in this. I don't give a fuck. Apparently, Bruce Dern is considered. Uh, there were people who felt like he was overacting in this. Um, oh my god, no, he's oh. fuck that. Bruce, Bruce Dern has been robbed of for the fact he doesn't even have an Oscar is a crime. He's been but robbed he was of robbed. everything. Like what? The, like yeah. how is Bruce Dern not fucking ass kissed on a daily basis? Daily basis. I I could not agree more because I mean you know obviously Fonda and uh, Voight both won for this film yes, they and both won the Oscars for this. Uh, Dern did not. So between this and Nebraska, which is one of my favorite movies of the last uh, <laughs> two decades, um, Nebraska too. And he's fucking Bruce Dern is so incredible in that movie. He was robbed of that as well. Um, but with that said, you know, very kind of what I love about this movie is the basic, very basic story is Jane Fonda is married to Bruce Dern, who's this very gung ho marine, and he's very you know, he's he's seeing the Vietnam War as a chance to, you know, get it's good for his career in the military. We should um, mention, too, this takes place in 1968. So this is the yeah. yeah. So this this yeah. is a, a, I mean, all these movies take place. With exactly. Um, it seems to but, be a key year for, for Ashby. But uh, Ashby. Yeah. 
this is so isn't trying to posit that Vietnam was still going in 78. No, exactly. So, you know, he goes off and she's left alone. And, you know, she's sort of this like military wife is sort of, you know, kind of bored housewife. But, you know, just she's not political herself, but she ends up volunteering at, at a VA hospital where she meets John Voight's character, who is now paralyzed after coming home from the war, fully traumatized. And it's basically how they sort of fall into this reluctant romance where they she like she's antagonistic and like when she first meets him he pisses yep. on her and him at the same time yeah <laughs> so, and it's like, not i mean there's about a meet you yeah exactly and he john boyd's character is going through a lot he is suicidal like he's just he's very upset and he's very traumatized but it be well she recognizes him too this is one thing i i had forgotten until recently they had known each other in high school. So she, she did. That's they, right. They, they weren't friends in high school, but they went to the same high the school. Same high each school. other. I've... So she's not meeting him for the first time in the chair. So that there's like this history that, that the two had that, you know, that there's still like a almost kind of what if, like in actuality, he met her before Dern did. Totally forgot. Again, I, so unfortunately I wasn't able to rewatch and like I've, first off, I've seen, Lassie Tail, Harold Maude, plenty enough. Um, I next to be Bound for Glory, I've seen this the least. Yeah, and so, but I probably haven't seen Coming Home in probably ten years. But um, it's, it's, I mean, I'll be, I'll watch it again. Like, it's, oh yeah, same thing. In fact, literally of all the movies we're going to talk tonight, that was the one I was most interested in revisiting because you know it's not one I've seen a ton, but I, I really did enjoy. But yeah, it's, it's still, it's one of those things when you watch it. Especially if you go in knowing how, if you're familiar with things like The Last Detail and Harold and Maude, this is, or and even Shampoo, this is so much more of a straightforward Hollywood kind of Oscar bait drama film. But, but again, it's still got an era of uh, oh, an era of classism to it. Oh well, no, absolutely, and it's very much in his wheelhouse thematically. And, yeah, but it's just, but it's just, it's just a really good. It's just a good, really great movie. And again, very fucking. The ending is very memorable, and you know, um, I, that's all I'll say. Um, yeah. Bruce um, gives good freak out and always, has. yeah, yep, but yeah, but yeah, there's we, just... it's a ticking time bomb, though, like because she's having this affair with John Boyd while her husband is overseas fighting in the war where John Boyd had been hurt, yeah, and they are both, you know, Fonda and Boyd are both very much struggling with their feelings on this because, yeah. He doesn't like that he's betraying another soldier, soldier any more than anything else. But they didn't ask to fall in love. They didn't ask to have like a history prior to this and, uh, that that instigated him asking. And he's not. He's even with. saying you. He's very upfront about you need to be with your husband. Like you yeah. should get you know, like make it. When, you know like, when they find out he's coming home, that that Dernsey is coming home. Yeah. Um. Like, I, I, I've seen enough documentaries. I'm actually calling him Dernsey myself now. Um, <laughs> yeah, me and Dernsey, we go way back. Uh, but when he finds out that Bruce Dern is coming home, it, it's like, okay, yes, like this, this naturally must come to an end. It's when Dern gets home and Dern is a lifer in the Marines and he's excited to go to Vietnam. Yeah. And when he comes back, he's a different person. He's just as damaged as Boyd is, but psychologically, because he was a commanding officer, and they allude to the idea that he had to give orders to do some really Real. atrocious things 
and that he saw some of these young people under him maybe even fucking enjoying it yeah and i mean it it is like rooted around in his brain and he is fucked now uh coming back from from this war and then he comes home to find like to discover on his own that his wife had this affair with another soldier and it it's never really a matter like it doesn't matter that he's in the wheelchair. It matters to Voight's character, and that's part of his growth. It doesn't matter to Dern that that's what that situation was. He didn't want his his wife working at the VA hospital to begin with, with. Um, because he was a very conservative, old school kind of guy. But what he's realizing is that he is always going to be this pro military person, and yet he hates this war that he just experienced. And then he gets home and he finds out that he's not even the king of his own castle anymore, so to speak. He's not the man that his wife was in love with when he left. He feels so displaced. He has this scene, which is probably the scene that people say he overacts in, but it's the scene that like makes me cry sometimes just like thinking about it with shouts. Same. You know, the point is in this house, like he, he puts the, the passion and the angst into weird words. Yeah. So another actor would have used, the emphasis on something different. Um, and I think that's why he gets labeled as an overactor is because he's doing something different with it. But I actually think that he's doing something more realistic with it. Uh, like you're, I, see, you're seeing a man really snap here. Yep. And it's it's unexpected in the perfect way. And it's it, we are so on the same page on this. Yeah, I agree 100% exactly. And inevitably, like it's going to lead to a scene with threatening violence. I'm not going to say how it calms itself necessarily i'm not going to say how it ends i will say i mean it's not a stereotypical movie where he goes out and kills john boyd for sleeping with his no. wife. like it it doesn't no. end on that stereotypical note in fact part of what makes it so wonderful is that it doesn't land on a stereotypical note at all and it feels like the type of movie that under anybody else's direction would have fallen on a stereotypical note someone would have had to have hurt somebody and in this yeah. case, nobody has it in them to hurt anybody yeah. else involved in this situation. They all have so much self-loathing, but compassion for the other person. And it's so confusing and nobody feels like they belong in the world that they were brought up in. And I think that's what a lot of people involved in this war were coming home feeling like. So very quick, because you've seen it more recently. So I remember there being an allusion to... The reason that um, I, I'm blank, I don't know the character's name, but the the Bruce Dern character comes home is that he accidentally shoots himself. Is that right? Is that why he comes home? Like his excuse is that he. God, now I'm going to have to rewatch again. I can't remember. He is wounded. That's why he comes home. He got shot. But if he shot himself, then that makes me wonder if he shot himself on purpose. Purpose, which is exactly what I was. So maybe that, you just that, uncovered a wrinkle that I wasn't even catching. Uh, and I could be, I honestly could be misremembering it. But that, I know that for was a fact he comes home. They don't expect him to come home because the war is not over. No, exactly. Um, so he comes home and gets a purple heart. But it, it is something weird like that, though. It wasn't like he, he got shot in battle. It was a, it was either that or somebody in his own platoon actually shot. Like friendly fire. Friendly fire. The only exactly so I that. think based off of the ending, which we won't, no spoilers for this episode because again we want you know that's it's except for the next movie we have to yeah. talk about that, that yes but yeah anyways i just remember there being some you know a, a sort of subtle 
thing happening there with with his character and how is the movie ends. But um, anyways, again, it's at no point on any of these films would I say I would not recommend any films. But for a lot of people who don't know how HBs work, this is definitely a great first film to to watch because it is probably the most like accessible again academy award winner definitely a very great movie and it definitely gives you a sort of look into what he wants um it gives you all the feels it really yeah, does. It gives all the, and it, yeah and and again great performances so yeah it's it's do definitely you know I, almost, liked it I, I liked it very much uh do you know who almost played um voight's character i honestly thought voight was the first no i don't no, Voight was actually originally approached for Dern's character, but he wanted to play the guy in the wheelchair because he wanted to challenge oh, himself. Um, first off, it, a lot of the cast is actual Vietnam War veterans. And if you watch the first five minutes of the movie, there's a scene where Voight's like uh, laid out on a gurney in a room with a bunch of other guys talking yeah. about the war. And they're all, you know, real in chairs and, and in various. Yeah. And those were all real guys talking about their real experiences. And Boyd was supposed to jump in and ad lib and, and join in with them. But he was so blown away by what he was hearing and what he was experiencing in this conversation that happened to be filmed that he just sat back and let everybody else carry the power. Um, and then he also, Boyd also ad libbed the speech that he gives to a high school at the end of the movie. Really? Yeah, which is pretty impressive. That was ad libbed? That that was Voight created that speech. That was, I believe, it was going to have a different ending altogether. The the Bruce Dern part certainly wasn't in the script. Like the the, the role, really? but the the conclusion of Bruce Dern's character was not in the script. And the, the whole time they were just were not sure how do we end it for him. We've got to figure out the best. Dude, way you're to end blowing it my mind. Wow, because Ashby was so improvisational by nature, and like I said, he, as long as he knew he had. What he needed to in the can, yeah. in the can, uh, he fully encouraged improvisation, and that's incredible. No different, so yeah. This, if you're wondering how good Boyd is, yeah, that that last speech that he gives to the high school is 100 John Boyd. That's sort um, of like the yeah. That's that's such a big yeah. Okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, but Ashby first approached Sylvester Stallone for the role. Oh, ironic. I mean, Stallone would go on to play the next step in sort of the coming home home yeah, uh, yeah. ptsd there's elements of all of this in john rambo of course at yep. least in the first movie uh yep. first blood but um but yeah stallone was was afraid that he didn't have the chops to do the uh the wheelchair stuff so interesting it's it, so funny that you mentioned because i was going to bring up how you know i was like you know watch the watch a trilogy of rolling thunder uh uh this and then uh, first blood and they're all very different <laughs> takes different takes on it like, i mean like, i see how they share some dna but man yeah. those are three different movies yeah but all but all good though all good in their own yes. right uh and jane fonda had one of the screen's first uh orgasms uh in this movie too so that was is that, that real that's not real she the orgasm real wasn't real no that Oh, orgasms yeah, no, just weren't in the shown. Story. Yes, she had the yeah. first. Yes. No, she's I, not having an orgasm. On like her character like, is what? having an orgasm because they had to approach, and I believe it's the first movie to approach uh, the romantic and sexual lives of of paraplegics, which was a big deal at that time to kind of uh, well at any time really. Yeah. Uh, to to show capabilities to show yeah. you know 
I, just because your legs don't work. You know. Yeah, but this film was actually used as a piece of evidence in the uh, documentary about the MPAA to show how harder the MPAA got as the years went on, that this was granted an R rating with Jane Fonda receiving uh, an orgasm from oral sex, whereas the exact same thing happened in a movie in the early 2000s, and that got slapped with an X. But yeah, that was that was interesting a big deal at the time. She used a body double, so it wasn't her body, but it, I mean, it was clearly her face. But yeah, that was a big deal at the time. It wasn't just that it was a woman having an orgasm. It was that it was also specifically moral sex. That was something that for a studio film, yeah, that I, I'm hesitant to say it had never been done um, just because I don't know that for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me. I do know that pre-code, like there are silent movies where characters have orgasms, but the silent era was a very different era than yeah. <laughs> what followed for another yeah. you know, 40 years beyond that. Like there, there's, um, I, th- I think there's actually a movie even called Climax or something like that, uh, silent film, where that was like the whole, it was Hedy Lamarr. Yeah, that was that's like crazy. The whole point. Yeah, <laughs> or climax girl, or you know, some sort of. <laughs> it was some a saucy title like that, but yeah, it was Hedy Lamar had an orgasm. Her character had an orgasm in a silent movie. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that was that was shut down by the um, the Hayes Code. So this was showing that you know one of the reasons why the seventies was so great was that we were breaking free of all that. Yes. Um, and we're able to finally deal with a topic like this seriously, because it's not I guess it's not not a sexy scene. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, Jane Fonda is beautiful. John Boyd's a good looking guy, but that's not the point of the orgasm. Like, no, no. <laughs> which no, is maybe my favorite sentence of this entire conversation. But uh... <laughs> You're not, that's what's so funny, because I think one of Hal Ashby's true talents is that Again, as previously stated, he he was a humanist. He was a anti-authority anti-authority humanist, and like in nothing about like even the landlord, which could be seen as exploitative in certain ways, and like I said, certain moments or scenes possibly, but nothing about his it. Everything seems so genuine and and real and honest and sympathetic that nothing in his films ever come across as cheap. You know, um, that's why. Only, I feel like only somebody like Hal Ashby could have made Harold and Maude in the first place because, yeah, yeah but um, I, I remember seeing that scene in, in Coming Home and yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not even remotely titillating, but it, it again, there's a beautiful... Yeah, I don't think its intention was to not be titillating, but that no. wasn't the overwhelming idea of it. No, but I think it was about these characters and about... It was. It was that... about their love story and it was about... Yeah, and, and again, also showing like the practicality of like th- th- this kind of stuff can happen even with you know yeah. um yeah but yeah i think everyone knows what we're going for right <laughs> i think i need to buy the movie though now the more we talk about the more i want to rewatch it though not and not because it's also available not, that's because Jane... and thankfully not on the going out of print list so yeah. so you can't get coming home you can get all of these uh, most of them are Kino Lorber or Criterion. Criterion yeah. put out um, Harold and Maud, Maud and Shampoo mm. and this last film we're going to talk about. Oh, of course they did. So with, with the, the time we have left, I mean, what a slice of heaven being there is. Uh, yes. This was the second Ashby film I saw. I saw the last detail when I was maybe 14 or 15, like I said, because of Nicholson. Mm-hmm. 
and of course the name of the director you know it's like oh i'm gonna file that away for later because this was a really good movie and then a couple years later i believe i was still in high school um like maybe senior year my dad suggested i rent being there and just said you gotta see being there and then when you're done we'll talk about the ending and i was intrigued Mm -hmm. enough by that uh but then as i started to play it there was that name again hal ashby and i'll tell you the last detail as like a 14 year old is what showed me that Hal Ashby was a director with a lot of talent. And then the second film I saw being there at 18 was how I knew that Hal Ashby was somehow fucking magical. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, Cause it's so unlike last detail. And again, yeah. so unlike coming home, so unlike yeah. bound for Gloria, so unlike Harold and Maude. But once again, we're dealing with the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. The poor. One thing is, you had already mentioned, the irony is that you you had already mentioned the face in the crowd when discussing Homeward Bound, or Bound for Glory, um, Homeward Bound. Um, uh, and what's weird is I've always associated this movie with a face in the crowd, but it's sort of on the other side of the coin scenario. Okay, I see. Scenario. He's, not, he's not boisterous, but it's the blank slateness that turns him into the instant celebrity. Exactly. And the idea of where Lonesome Roads doesn't intend to become a, a demagogue. Once he gets that taste, you know, people fall for his sway where chance people see his simple way. We'll get into it. But one one thing I'll say off the top is I have heard people lump all of the praise in this movie on Peter Sellers. And again, he's Peter Sellers. He's literally uh, in the echelon of you know, people hold Pierce Sellers as a performer in the highest regard, and rightfully so. And the limitations of of what he did in this role, and the you know the, the charm that he imbues while being almost like this blank slate of a person. As much as I don't have a problem with Pierce Sellers getting the praise, with that said, I also not I also feel like Hal Ashby deserves a lot of the credit. But yeah. what I think doesn't get enough credit is the script. Yeah, because I feel like if you were to read just on the written page so much of that movie is in the writing every time chance speaks yes the performance is magical and it's it is the, the sort of beautiful way that Pierre sells the dialogue but the dialogue is so it's so precise everything that is not just chance everything they said the president everybody it's so mathematically precise to tell that story and to see how the characters and again it, i don't know i i i've i've never read the script maybe it was all ad lib but whatever to me when i see the movie everything dialogue wise is like a pu- piece of the puzzle and that ambiguity only works because everything that is said makes it all work you people are mis like taking what chance is saying and they're taking it to mean like, oh, he's this, you know, he's like, it's he's a philosophical genius or he has all this wisdom that only works because of how great the, the, the words are. And I'm assuming it's script. Again, I don't know how much of that. There, lived, there's but... a script. Well, this one's a little contentious. It was actually um, that editor that I mentioned on the last detail that uh, was willing to call the lawyers and, and go to jail for protecting the. Also, I really want to read the book. I know the book is much different, and the ending is not in the book. 
here's the lowdown on the writing for for being there. It's actually rather interesting. It's based on a book by Jerzy Krasinski, uh, which I've read, and I will say 100% the movie's better than the book. He's also credited for writing the screenplay, and he got nominated for an Oscar for writing the screenplay. However, in reality, he wrote three drafts of the screenplay, none of which were usable. It was proven that he plagiarized the novel from a Polish novel. He, he himself was Polish. And Robert C. Jones was brought in to write a new draft. And Robert C. Jones, who was the editor on The Last Detail, uh, who made all the fucks work in The Last Detail, <laughs> uh, he got snubbed. The Writers Guild didn't give him the credit because Jerzy Kaczynski wrote the first three drafts. So Jerzy Kaczynski gets all the credit for this film and for this book, and he deserves zero. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, he even plays a part in the movie. Yeah. And, and he also, I mean, this is the second time that there would be a connection. Uh, Jay Sebring, the character that George and Shampoo is based on, unfortunately was killed by the Manson family in Sharon Tate's house. Um, so he met a very unfortunate end. Jersey Kaczynski was supposed to be there that night, but lost luggage kept him at the airport, so he never showed up. That's so I, crazy. I didn't I know any of this. Yeah, I kind of find that um, an interesting, like the Venn diagram of Hal Ashby and Charles Manson, like actually cross. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Jay Sebring was also, he was the one, uh, he, he was a character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, played by, uh, oh, what's his name? The Into the Wild guy. The, um, yeah, you know, great, great. Um... Killer Joe. I want, this is his name's not Jay too, is it? Uh, Emil Hirsch. Emil played by Emil Hirsch. So yeah, that character is who Shampoo is based on that, and uh, as you said, John Peters. Uh, but yeah, Kaczynski was supposed to be there night that night as well. But yeah, Kaczynski was someone who I always admired because he wrote this movie and he wrote that book. Uh, and I did like the movie much better than the book, but you know, I I it still is the story of Chance. You know, Chance the Gardener. Uh, for those who haven't seen being there, we're, we're skipping giving kind of like the basic story, which is, again, the thinnest of storylines, given this intense depth of character. But Peter Sellers plays a middle aged man living in a very wealthy like townhouse in Washington, D.C., but he's he's never been diagnosed. So we don't know exactly what he has. He's on the spectrum somehow. He's he's developmentally disabled um the old man the old rich man who owned the house in washington dc took him in when he was a child we don't know from where we don't know chance is asked at a certain point if the old man is his father and he, even he's not sure but chance has been kept out of like the real world his entire life he became the gardener for the house he's never left the grounds and he's now middle-aged he knows everything about the garden in the house. And he remembers every time they had visitors by, you know, visits by maintenance people and whatever. And he knows what he watches on TV, but he has somewhat the mind of a child. Almost every time he's watching TV, it's like, uh, it's like the greatest hits of, of our youths. He's watching Sesame street at one point, and then Mr. Rogers and uh, captain kangaroo, but he's always watching TV. It's how he's happiest and most content is either watching TV or gardening. And then the old man dies. The old man dies before the movie starts. And we're seeing him on like day one of not having the old man around. 
and there's no record of Chance the Gardener. He has no social security number. He's never been to a doctor. He's always just been in this house watching TV and doing the garden. And this big estate that he lives in, in the middle of Washington, D.C., I mean, that's obviously not a place where he can stay anymore. So he's he's legally pushed out of the place with no care to where he goes. And he just starts to wander around Washington, D.C., dressed in these beautiful, like, three-piece suits that are definitely outdated, but trendy again in 1979. So here's this, I'm just going to say, like, kind of a, would, would we call him an idiot? Is it mean to call him an idiot? I still don't know even if you, we can define him as being simple or or deprived. Yeah. Or if he is something indefinable, like if he's so such an honest soul, such a good person that like he seems not like it's ambiguous enough. I've never liked this to say straight out, oh, he is a simpleton or you know, he's on the spectrum or whatever, even though well, that he's is certainly simple. I think we can agree that yeah. he's he's simple. He's not he's not a deep thinker um, and he and he's fine with not being a deep thinker. But anyways, he's now loose on Washington, D.C., but dressed in a way that makes him look like he look. is a politician, like a wealthy one at that. And so he ends up in a situation where he actually gets backed over by a car, uh, gets very minor injury on his leg. But the car happens to be the uh, the belong to the wife of a very wealthy man, also in Washington D.C., who insists that Chance come with her to go see his her doctor, who lives in her house because her husband is about to die and needs like all around care. And Chance, not knowing any better, goes along for the ride. Yep. And while they're driving, she offers him a drink and he's never had alcohol, but he doesn't know to say I've never had alcohol and he doesn't know to expect it to taste the way it does or to set his mouth on fire. So he's literally taking a sip of his drink at the same time he's being asked what his name is and he's choking and he's saying Chance the Gardener, but it comes out in a way that can be easily mistaken as Chauncey Gardener. Yeah. So she now believes that she's got Chauncey Gardener in her car. And every question that she asks, he answers in a very straightforward way, but in which she implies, everybody implies what they will about Chance. And that's the magic of it. That's how we get so far. She assumes that he's affluent. She assumes that he's also important because of the way he's dressed. And they point out later on in the movie and also because he's white. Um, He's taken back to this estate where he's now given a place to stay, even though he was homeless two seconds ago, but he doesn't even know what homeless is. So he's not, his demeanor is not changing. It's just, okay, now I live here. Um, and he's meeting the the wealthy husband played by uh, Melvin Douglas. I should point out the wife is played by Shirley MacLaine uh, mm. quite brilliantly. Uh, everybody's great in this. Uh, Melvin Douglas won the Oscar. But Melvin Douglas has the same experience with now Chauncey, where what the words that he says to Chauncey are greeted with a smile and a nod and a vague sort of like possible reference to understanding what's being talked about, but not really. Mm -hmm. but, he, but he makes the same mistake that Shirley MacLaine makes, but for different reasons, for about different things. And now thinks that Chauncey is like his best friend and possibly the person who can take over his business when he dies in a you know what he assumes will be a couple of days 
and he goes so far as to even introduce Chauncey to the president of the United States, played by Jack Warden, who has the again has the same experience with Chauncey Gardner to where now he's the president is quoting Chauncey Gardner in a speech on live television, even though he horribly misquotes Chauncey Gardner basically makes a gardening reference and the president quote unquote quotes him on TV as comparing the economy to a garden and that it's time to till the soil and things will be fine in the spring. And so now every reporter in the world is trying to get a hold of Chauncey because they want to know who is this guy we've never heard of that's being quoted by the president. And it's just a snowball effect. Once people start to investigate and realize there's no such person as Chauncey Gardner, well, then it becomes conspiratorial. You know, who covered him up? Is it the CIA? Is it the FBI? Why does this person not exist on the books? He clearly exists. And he's up front. If someone were to ask him directly, and eventually somebody does, uh, you're just a gardener, aren't you? He's going to say, yes, that's, that's what I am. I'm a very good gardener. He's not lying to a single soul. No, nope. he doesn't know what lying is. Like it's it, it's. I, he, I don't even know if I'm doing it justice, but it, it's it's the only way I know how to describe this like so-called plot. It's not really a plot. It's just this circumstance building and yeah. building and building and building. And but it's, I mean, basically, I'll let you go off on it before we get to the ending. Oh no, no worry. Um, I mean, basically. Everybody in the film is seeing from this blank slate what they want to see. For uh, the Shirley MacLaine character, it's a, a romantic partner. For the president, it's you know a a, a, a a source of wisdom that he can use. And it's about what Butler people... thinks he's funny. He thinks he's because yeah. <laughs> when they get in an elevator, he says, "How long are we in here for?" And he thinks that's a joke because who wouldn't? Yeah. Who... But he exactly. doesn't know what an elevator is. <laughs> How long are we in this room? You know, <laughs> I think my thing is in the whole, like you said, the whole cast is great. There was a point where like Pierce out, like just, I felt like overnight, every, everybody and their mom had to be like a big Pierce Sellers fan. They had to talk about uh, the magic Christian and, you know, they did the, all the Pink Panther movies. And I, I will be honest, the contrarian in me at one point was like, eh, Pierce Sellers is overrated. I saw those Pink Panther movies. Those are stupid. Most and of them are, it, to be fair. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I will defend the Magic Christian, but the Pink Panther movies are very difficult. No, and, and again, it was and, I, cool and I never knew why people were so crazy about the party, and now no one can watch the party because he played it in brownface. But I, I never really yeah. got the appeal of that movie. So I, I get what you mean. It was seeing this movie for the first time, you know, in my twenties or or you know whatever. Yeah, I mean, probably mid twenties, and being like, oh shit, like I don't think another person could have played this role because not only. I, I, not, I just don't know of another actor that could have both been Chance the Gardener and Chauncey Gardener, like could have been believable as this wise, sophisticated kind of, you know, man of quiet intelligence and, a you know, a, a, a simple dullard gardener. It's that ability to play that both ways and that be able to interpret that performance both ways which is so incredible and i the the this the like the scene where like he's watching he doesn't know what sex is but like he's watching the tv and he's sees them kissing on tv so he just does that like it's so awkward but so what handled so well 
The only and, reason he's able to kiss Shirley McLean is because at that moment he's able to see Steve McQueen kiss Faye Dunaway on TV. Yep, exactly. In a and movie, by the way, that Al Ashby edited as <laughs> a Thomas Crown affair. Thomas Crown affair. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's just I mean, even if you don't include the ending, which I I do feel like the ending is myth 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 mythological mythologized. It is the it's ending has become okay. Yes. Yeah, the ending has become what most people want to talk about. But if you take the ending away, it's still a fascinating movie. It loses it's none just, of its poignancy without that no. ending. It's just it's a, just the, an ending that makes you want to talk about it. That's yeah. The ending is just adds this whole layer of ambiguity. Um, with that said, it is one of the most interesting endings of a film ever. It leaves it so open ended. So historically, for I mean, if you Again, we we do this all the time, but if you're if you are listening to this podcast, it means you're probably a film fan. It means you've probably seen this movie. You've at least heard about it. And you not probably know the ending of this movie is simple minded chance the gardener walks across water. Yes. Unexplained. Uh, the, the 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 man that he's living with, played by Melvin Douglas, has now passed away. Yeah. Um, they were at his funeral. He's being put inside of a vault that looks like a Freemason. Uh, it's very interesting yeah and they are discussing the pallbearers are discussing as they're putting the body into the crypt who is going to be his replacement and chauncey gardner is the only name that keeps being brought up and then they start talking about the presidency in this small little scene um and it it starts to look like chauncey gardner is on a fast track to becoming president of the united states which is absolutely absurd and that would have been a interesting ending on its own but chauncey walks away from the funeral goes down by the pond in the garden helps fix like a a sapling that's falling over and then just yeah casually walks across the pond back to the great big house and but he does notice that this is unusual because he does stop and put his umbrella in the water to show that the water has depth yes and that's the point that's what i was going to is that it's even that portion because if he just walks across the water, one could assume it's iced over. It's an opt like he literally dips his little umbrella and it go, Oh, interesting. And to show the audience, like this isn't normal. Like, uh, and it's, I've heard all the theories to be frank. I, I don't believe one over another. I don't. Um, Neither did Hal Ashby. He did it to fuck with us. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> after everything you said about Kaczynski, Corin- well, was the writer of the novel, he actually, from what I've heard, t- takes credit because on page four of page four or five of the novel, it talks about how chance floated into the scene like a TV image buoyed by forces that he could not explain or see something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And that that and that he, he came up with the ending and told that's what the ending should be to Hal Ashby. No, uh, I've heard <laughs> that Ashby came up with it, and I've heard that Caleb Dachanel, the um, cinematographer, came up with it. I, my guess is that they came up with it together. I'm now wondering if Kaczynski was even supposed to be at Sharon Tate's house, the more we're talking about him. <laughs> um, exactly. I, I want to know who did he tell that story, or is he that did, like, yeah, documented somewhere else? He it on a radio. Okay, then he probably wasn't supposed to be there. Because the more <laughs> I hear about Kaczynski, the more I'm just like, this guy was a ripoff artist. 
Uh, probably artist. probably an interesting uh intelligent con artist but yeah For sure. the one person the one person in the entire history of the world who i guarantee did not come up with that like i would believe dwight d eisenhower came up with the ending of being there before i believe jersey kaczynski came up <laughs> with the ending of being there <laughs> I mean, to to be fair, uh, you know, if it is in the book, like if that if that's in the book, I mean, I read the book. Is, I, I I did not pick up any kind of reference. Like, if that's what he intended, then he failed to write it successfully in a way that. That's well, that's the thing is, even when I so even when I, I I heard that, I was like, that seems like kind of a stretch. Like he looked for one stanza that like or one like paragraph, excuse me, that was like he could. Yeah, I, and that literally before I knew anything about because again historically it is nobody has ever fully explained the ending or claimed the ending meant anything. So um, now, what do you think? Like, if look, I don't, I, I don't mean like what you think the intention was when you watch yes, cause the movie because the, the intention is known to be nothing. The intention was to to fuck with us and make us ask, what does that mean? Now, I think when it comes to the, like, what do I think within the narrative? Like, how do I yes. explain it as making sense? I don't think it has anything to do with being a deity or being a second coming of Jesus or any of the stuff that I think a lot of people naturally gravitated towards, especially at the time. I think it's more that he walked across water because nobody really told him he could. That's exactly we're literally on the same page. I li- <laughs> li- literally, my thing is he's so pure. He doesn't he know. I don't that- know that he's pure. I don't know that he's a great person. I don't think he knows what a great person is. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. He, no, he's not especially all true. He's just literally a blank slate and every. He is he's just a reacting- blank slate and a mirror all at the same time. Yeah. He's a projection uh, exactly. of what people want and mm-hmm. he's an absorber of what people want. Yeah. But. My takeaway is literally that he's just so he is so simple or so he's such a blank slate. He doesn't know that he shouldn't be able to do that. Even his whole thing is like, oh, that's interesting. Like when he puts the thing, he's like, oh, it goes down that far. And he just continues to walk. Like, I guess this is a thing that I do now. Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing of like he is supposed to be like a Christ figure and that the entire movie, he's he's literally like an one thing I and this. I don't know. I mean internet theories are always bullshit i the worst two words in the fucking english language are fan theories um (laughs) but like some i guess you know people try to say like examples of the movie that he is like an angel or some people also one thing i read that was interesting is that um he's dead and that when he's forced out of his house you know the entire first few minutes of the movie is him like in you know Oh, uh, like he's in limbo and and, like, and that he like he died of starvation in the house. Yeah, he died, you know, destitute on the streets, and then the rest of the movie is him in his version of heaven because he really like you know everything is like he he has friends, people like like him. He he's, has a girlfriend that surely yep. fucking claim. Like. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily. I I, I, not, pref- I prefer that to the idea that he's a deity by far. Yeah, same, one hundred percent. But I think it's more that that he's an innocent. Yeah, same. We we're on the same page. But yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours and days 
on just yes. that movie alone. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, and the the fact that that's you know his last film of the seventies is quite a statement. Yeah, you know, again, it is unfortunate that his eighties films turned out the way they did, whether through artistic failure or you know evil machinations of the uh, you know studio industry. But it, I don't. I, I was telling a coworker when I was talking about our podcast and that we were going to be recording this, and I can't think of another director who it that period in the seventies is so such a for the longest time. I feel like he, especially with people always you know Harold Mod became very popular among some people, and but everybody's always held being there as this sort of like magnum opus of cinema. Um, but I feel like the last crusade, the last crusade, the last detail. Um, I feel like some of his movies have become more like well loved. I know, and I've heard other filmmakers that I enjoy have mentioned the last detail as being one of their favorite films. When you know, back in the day, the only person I knew that loved it was Big Pete. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, literally, he should be in the same conversation. To to me, you know, Pete, some of the the, the seventies filmmakers like you know, Francis Ford Coppola, and this is no slight to Francis Ford Coppola, but if I look at Francis Ford Coppola's output versus uh, Hal Ashby's output, there's far more consistent greatness in, in Hal Ashby's work. Exactly. Um, like, that, that, I was trying to, like, figure out kind of how to balance it out in the numbers. I'm like, okay, like, Coppola had four movies in the 70s that were all great, but Ashby had seven, but at least two of those were maybe not as or one of those was not as great. Like, like just trying to run whose track record against someone else's track record. Yeah. Like, uh, Scorsese's my hero, but like, really, like, Mean Streets, Alice doesn't live here anymore, and um, Taxi Driver are his seventies. Like, I happen to like New York, New York, and I would probably like I did compare it to Bound for Glory as like a a flawed, you know, sort of cokehead masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Boxcar Bertha, I actually find pretty boring and even like uh spielberg had uh you know three or four of them like the fact that hal ashby had seven fucking amazing like the one that we are talking about as one of the worst was also nominated for best picture yeah exactly so like and has the distinction of being the first steady cam movie yeah like there is no other run quite like ashby's sydney lamette wasn't knocking him out as consistently like he did a, he was prolific in the 70s but not every movie that Sidney Lumet made in the 70s had the magic I mean I could say Altman's 70s output is on par because he was also so prolific but he also had some you know he I don't know if, I don't know if the consistency was on the same level um, I mean like I love Altman and I could watch any Altman at any time but health is pretty rough um, I was gonna, yeah what was the one he did with? Uh, oh, he did one with. Um, well, anyway, yeah, Altman was not consistent. Altman was a genius, and he's in my top five of all time. Same. Um, and the thing, but I mean, to be but, fair, the Altman yeah. whole thing was because consistency wasn't. He let his part. His films were more partnerships than probably any other filmmaker. He really was like him working with the cast and letting the cast sort of create this. You know, the I can. I can excuse inconsistencies with him. And also if you get movies like fucking Nashville and three women, and I mean, you can make some flops. I I, I won't hold it against you. um, I went off on a, I think a 40 minute rant on the long goodbye on this show once. So, (laughs) 
so yeah, Altman's got credibility for me, but it's 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 hard to think of like seven films one after the other. Yeah, just spreading all, from I mean, 1972, 1979, like fully encompassing the decade. Like calling a favorite, I mean, by tomorrow I may feel I'm another name will pop into my head. I'll be like, why didn't I think of that? But it's at least very clear that Hal Ashby is in the running for that title and should be for more people. Yes, at 100%. And like I said, you know, he, he his films have meant a lot to me specifically. Uh, one thing though, I have to admit, it, the first time I saw, um, or the first time I he- heard about uh, being there, I think I just assumed it was a uh, um, uh, uh, Kubrick film, probably because of you know the uh, the association. But for for the longest time, I think I just um, every time I would think of being there, I would like, oh yeah, Ku- oh, wait, no, it's not Kubrick. It's Hal Ashby. It's a Peter um, Sellers thing. I'm the Peter Sellers co- connection, exactly. But yeah, before we go, I, I do feel like I need to point out, because um, I thought this was kind of beautiful, the final line in being there, which is kind of spoken uh, with a kind of almost echo effect by Jack Warden's president, right before, or right as like Chauncey is walking across the water, he says, life is a state of mind. Yes. Um, when Peter It's written Sutter, on the tomb. Yes, it's written on, on Rand's tomb. Uh the man who's who's uh funeral the rich yeah but it is also on the tombstone of peter sellers who died a year after this movie and i thought that was kind of beautiful once i found that out that's awesome yeah so amazing this movie does carry a lot of um importance for people as being the last film of peter sellers uh and he, he worked on it for nine years and he he claims the reason he was robbed of his oscar is because they put the blooper at the end during the credits which I kind of agree with. Like, I don't think it lost him the Oscar, but I do think that seeing him as Peter Sellers um, takes you out of the movie, especially after that fucking bomb drop of a moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, but that was an Ashby decision to put the outtake at the end. But anyway. well, I mean, he, he it you know posthumously it it goes down as one of the most beloved, most respected performances in film history. One of the most beloved film characters in film history. So, and you know he's Peter Sellers, so it's not like he didn't get any any of his aplomb. Um, real quick, there's a weird thing to end it on, or my last piece. One thing I forgot to to say at the beginning, because um, we really went into the landlord probably deeper than either of us expected. But yes. Robert Klein, uh, a young Robert <laughs> Robert Klein, yes. I think it was his first movie. Yep, he plays his. It's his sister's husband, right? Yes. Or fiance, yeah, fiance. Never has there been a better rich idiot in Hollywood. His, it is every every time I think about his face in that movie, I start laughing. And you know, Robert Klein was a famous comedian and impressionist. Very he intellectual, is playing a fucking rich moron, and it's insanely funny. I just felt like I had to give Robert Klein his props because uh, the first to. time I watched it, I I was like, is that Robert Klein? And oh, uh, and pesticides. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, just a little. Yeah. No, it's good to mention Robert Klein. We should have mentioned Robert Klein. Um, I mean, Robert, great cast. Robert Klein has been spotted out on the picket line. So, uh, you know, mad respect to Robert Klein. Mad respect. Anyways, Devin, this was a great. I I I was so excited to do this one. You know, it's like I, again, you already said, it, but I can't believe it took us this long to talk about Hal Ashby. Um, will definitely be a long episode, but 
I think, like I said, I, I could have... T- I know both of us could have talked another two hours about uh, Ashby and his work. So easily. So I, I think we deserve some uh, credit for making it as short as we did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't complain <laughs> about the length. This is expedited. But anyways, yeah, I, I got to get out of here. I got to tap out. But uh, right. it, it's always great talking to you, James. I look forward to this. This is uh, one of my favorite things to do. So, Same. Uh, I look forward to the next one. We don't know what it is yet, but it'll be fairly soon uh maybe we'll do our um idea of of kind of uh treating each other to some things that maybe the other hasn't seen or that we'll do our mystery let's do our mystery grab bag uh for our next one we'll do each do pick three movies we want to talk about doesn't have to have any theme rhyme or reason there's three movies we each want to talk about dude that sounds like a lot of fun sounds good man all right man i will talk to you soon talk to you soon thanks for listening gentlemen take care and don't forget Life is a state of mind.